I'm your host, Jonathan Tarosian, and this is the New Liberals Podcast, liberal conversations for illiberal times. And how do we define our tribes? That's a word that gets thrown around a lot these days. Political tribes, ideological tribes, religious tribes, national tribes. It's just tribalism all the way down. And look, tribalism, factionalism, whatever you want to call strong loyalty to one's own social group, that's been with us since the dawn of humankind. And we're never going to get rid of it. But we can redefine and expand our tribes to include more people and decrease the animosity we may feel towards our so-called outgroups. Our guest this week has been thinking a lot about how to do just that. Jay Shapiro is a producer, writer, and documentary filmmaker. He also hosts The Dilemma Podcast, which focuses on philosophy, psychology, and politics. Jay, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me back for round two. Well, I was going to say to our listeners, if that intro sounds a little familiar, it is because I literally just copy and pasted it from your first appearance on the podcast. You are our first two-time podcast guest. I am eagerly awaiting my trophy in the mail. It's on the way. <laughs> and a medal or whatever I get. But yes, I, I'm absolutely flattered and love talking to you. I know we had sort of like a, a pre-conversation of this one. And I mean, I'm just excited to talk to you and I'm going to resist the urge to just interview you as well. But, <laughs> but may, maybe I'll give into them that temptation as well. Yeah. Well, as we were chatting back and forth over the last month and in preparation for our, our second chat, you had offered up a series of topics for us to discuss, which I've sort of rounded up to kind of give the the listener a potential glimpse at what we might be discussing, perhaps talking about your experiences in West Africa as a teenager, mm -hmm. your experiences in East Africa as a young man in your 20s, your film Opposite Field, which is about a Ugandan Little League team aiming to be the first African team to play in the World Series. I think it came out in 2015. Highly recommend anyone check that out. What does it mean to be an American? How do we define what America is? And then also issues of representation across industries or the United Airlines recent announcement that 50% of its pilots that it's going to train over the next decade will be either women or people of color, which by the way, I always find it a little funny that they separate these categories, by the way, because it makes me think that all people of color are male when I hear that yeah. term. Yeah. It's like women and people of color. I'm like, well, there are women POC. That's neither here nor there. So there's an Oxford comma somewhere in there in our minds. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. There's something there that needs to be put in. So here's the trouble, Jay. And you and I discussed this a little bit before the recording. Your brain and my brain are kind of wired in a sort of similar way, I think, which is left to my own devices when I'm not trying to prep an outline for an episode of the show. My mind kind of naturally wanders in a thousand directions, which kind of causes it to spiral out into various tangents. But when I prep, to sort of safeguard against the tendency and to ensure that a discussion remains coherent, I kind of pick one super topic usually, right? Like I'll pick like climate change and then a few subtopics like nuclear reactors, carbon capture, ozone depletion. But this was a bit of a different beast. So if I were to start anywhere, just to kick us off, I think I would start with this, which was inspired by an animation you're currently working on. Do we all actually deep down want to return to a simpler life of farming are so many of us depressed and anxious and sad and adrift because we simply have too much and our abundance has short-circuited our brain's natural need for daily cause and effect, for struggle and reward, what we've spent 99.9% .9 of human history doing? Do we feel atomized, alone, anxious because of what has come about in only the last few hundred years? Could we point to that change to what's causing a lot of our societal ills today 
And was that the point of your animation? I'll put it to you to give a little more context as to what I'm talking about, but I thought that could be a good place to kick us off. Right. No, I think that's great. Yeah, I think the through line for that introduction of sort of the like, sounds a little bit like you're splattering things against the wall, and then we're seeing what makes sense of it. I think the actual through line, you're on it, is that if we pull off this magic trick in this conversation, I want it to be about this concept of tribalism as a, and you're hinting at it as a, either a psychological feature or bug, and I'm sure we'll have to parse that. And then the rapidly changing context of this psychological feature or bug, namely technology and affluence and the things you just hinted at. So yeah, so you're, we'll see if we can pull off the trick and tell a few stories along the way, because what you're talking about, about this animation, which really has been on my computer for years, and it's just as a fellow filmmaker and sort of storyteller, it's the way that we process these kinds of confusing things, right? It's telling the story of the, maybe my origin story of my political homelessness or these kinds of questions about what tribe am I, where do I belong in the world? That really started my mental pathway down becoming a filmmaker and then maybe eventually my interest in philosophy and everything else that we talk about. And so here's the brief version of the story that will eventually be told in that animation, which yeah, it's only like two minutes long right now. I was a junior in high school in Allentown, Pennsylvania. So this is suburban, very safe Allentown, late 90s, all the affluence that, that you're sort of hinting at, you know, I had a washing machine, laundry done for me by my mom and a very safe coddled life. And like just about all of my friends who were also raised in this sort of Jewish community, secular Jewish community. My parents had earmarked a bunch of money for me to go to Israel, like most of my, I think all my friends really were doing that in that community. And I just didn't want to go to Israel. I was, part of that is just sort of a personality of being angsty and wanting to be a little different and cool and edgy. Part of that was also a very young, naive sort of political sense of hypocrisy about the kind of politics I was hearing from my parents and in my community that didn't seem to map on to what I was seeing as a high schooler in in Israel, just from my TV screen. So there was all kinds of reasons. And I ended up asking my parents if I could just use the money to go somewhere else with this sort of simple, like, I could, I'm sure I could go to Israel anytime in my life for free or a different time and I'll get there. But can I use this money to go somewhere else? And right, perhaps Thailand or Ghana. Yeah, that's what it came. That's what it came down to in the end was Thailand or Ghana, which was literally just like picking it out of a hat with this group called the Experiment in International Living. I ended up going to Ghana totally sort of accidentally, because my dad wanted to drive me to the airport, which left from JFK. And that experience, I'm this teenager bumming around with 10 other high school students, part homestay, part education, part community service in Ghana, which is pre-cell phone Africa. This is still like 1999, which it changed overnight with cell phones, which is another thing that we might even get to or talk about the changes of the world. But this is pre-cell phone Africa. And the experiences I had there over the next like six weeks of this whole trip were really life-altering and life-changing. And I could talk about this in all kinds of different ways, but I want to zoom in on, on one particular moment that I think was so arresting for me. I was volunteering at this school, little rural school, elementary school, and I witnessed, because this was just very commonplace, a level of... Uh, what we would call child abuse, but they would call sort of discipline in the school of whipping kids on their hands with switches when they would just, the entire class would get it. If like they would get something wrong or just be, if one or two of them would be misbehaving, the teacher might call out that we're going to, you know, <laughs> everyone's going to get hit now. They would put their palms of their hands out 
and get smacked by these teachers in the hand. I actually had it done to me because I was like, I need to know what this feels like. And it's terrible. All the kids have like callous hands from getting this so often, <laughs> but my soft Allentown white hands were like, you know, bruised for like a week. It was crazy. And so like witnessing that as this white kid in West Africa, I have obvious strong emotions that this is like just wrong. You know, like I, my disgust emotion is going off and being like, this is terrible. This is abuse, right? But the paralysis of what is my place to inject myself should I say something? Who do I say it to? Am I racist for somehow thinking of it? Is this somehow caused by or in relation to white supremacy or the legacy of slavery? Like you want to find all of these, I don't know, excuses and reasons for not jumping in and doing what you just sort of feel and know is right. Those kinds of experiences stick with you because they're so confusing and you could talk yourself into sort of this paralysis. I guess it led me, like I said, years later, I actually went to college and then went back to Ghana to make a film there again, because I just needed to sort of scratch this itch that was planted of all of these confusing questions. And on top of that, to your question of sort of like, do we all want to return to this, I don't know, <laughs> farming and living off the land simplicity? Maybe. And in some very, you know, simple sense with my coddled life in Allentown playing Nintendo and having like a lot of my, my whims just met by affluence. Not that I was like mega rich, but compared to these people, I certainly was. I think the, the nagging kind of emptiness of that or feeling like something's missing and there must be something more naturally leads us in the Western world, at least in that sense, to romanticize a kind of anti-version of that, a pre-version of that, when, it, you know, <laughs> almost like an Amish version of that, pre-technology, when things were a little harder, when things were, you had to dig for your own food and plant your own food. And you naturally, I think, map that on to these visions of Africa and not, you know, National Geographic images of tribes and this kind of simpler life. And in a weird way, you're hoping to find it because if you find it there, it's like confirmation that we did make some wrong turn in Western society. And it's an obvious one. And this is the answer. And like they have this secret kind of special knowledge that they've retained, an ancestral sort of knowledge. That bubble is also popped for you if you have a kind of curious, objective <laughs> mind. And that happened to me in a very specific moment when after wanting to find that and wanting to believe that was sort of true being in this very rural place as well. It's called Amano Praso, this little village in the middle of Ghana. And I was doing some community service there and watching this woman, old woman in the river in the morning with the sun rising, washing clothes in the river. And it was beautiful. Like objectively, this is a beautiful scene that would appear on National Geographic. But all I could think of was that woman really could use a washing machine. And she would desperately want one if I could magically, you know, pull one out of my pocket so she could put the clothes in there, not be getting malaria while she's in that river and, you know, go make something of her life that she would maybe rather be doing. And already there's this sense of sort of, am I imposing a vision of Western sort of comfort on her or something? Because I know there's an emptiness to it as well. So all of those thoughts are paralyzing. I was just a kid and a teenager, but it started a lot of my, I think, what I can identify now telling a story about it as like my origin story of political homelessness, because it separated me from a lot of the liberal 
narratives I was getting back home. So I came back to Allentown and had no idea how to talk about it, was paralyzed by it, and just walked around in a stupor until I could scratch the itch more. And, and the way I figured out how to do it was a camera. And maybe I have some answers to that, but I'll, I've said enough for what that animation was about. No, that's great. And I think that what you experienced isn't a uniquely, and I think you'd agree with this, is not a uniquely liberal phenomenon. I think what happened is, is that when people's political ideologies come in contact with real world scenarios, especially ones that are outside of the country that they grew up in, and they experience like how other countries do things. It's sort of like a writ large version of what happens when you're a kid and you go over to a friend's house for the first time for an extended period. <laughs> and you see like how another family does things. And then you take that knowledge of how that family is doing something. And sometimes you see like the bad stuff and you're like, oh, I don't really like how they're talking to Timmy. Man, that makes me a lot more grateful for my mom and dad or, you know, whatever mixture of parents you might have. Like that makes me more grateful for the parents that I have because they treat me better or I like the rules they have better. But I'm sure we've all also experienced as children that same effect where you're a kid and you're like, well, wait a second. Timmy's parents let him stay up until 9 p.m. playing video games and he's still getting A's on all of his tests. Like, why do I have to stop playing at 6 p.m. and I can only play an hour a week and then three hours on the weekends, right? It's only when you experience how other families are doing things or other countries are doing things, you then have to second guess and reconsider, hopefully, your own views, right? Because it's easy to have views in like a bubble, yeah. especially when everyone around you, be they liberal or conservative or communist or libertarian or whatever, are all echoing your views back to you. <laughs> Which is especially dangerous on social media now because you get in a scenario where everyone you know, whether in your friend groups, and this is happening in neighborhoods as well, neighborhoods are more segregated politically than they have ever been in American history. And we see this replicating online. When everyone who surrounds you has your views, your views feel like the only correct views. And so I was wondering if you can just continue to speak on your experiences in Africa and how I guess they continue to change. Like, you said that once you returned to Allentown, Pennsylvania, like it made you reconsider stuff. But once you had the chance to go back again, once the shell shock had receded, let's say, how did your political stances and your views on America's relation to the outside world, your experiences or your understandings of yourself as a quote unquote white person in relation to people of color, which feels like a weird phrase to use in a country that is majority, <laughs> a majority black, and I don't think they'd consider themselves quote unquote people of color. <laughs> right. I'd love you to continue kind of exploring and sharing that experience when you returned. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, I returned and <laughs> like I said, I was just paralyzed with, yeah, of course, all the parents of all my friends came over and was they were all their kids went to Israel, which is a, a predictable and knowable kind of thing. You can imagine it if they went to the Western Wall and they danced and <laughs> they, they ate hummus, like everyone kind of followed the same program. They, they met with the Israeli military. It's totally, I don't think I'm, I mean, I'm sure you're talking, if I'm talking Israel, I'll piss someone off, but it's a propaganda tour, really. I mean, you meet the IDF and, and it's a very, it's a kind of indoctrination. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone who's done birthright, and I have Jewish American friends here in LA, like anyone who has experienced birthright understands that that's kind of the, that's like part and parcel. You're getting a free trip. Yeah. What goes with that? What go, of course, like what goes with it? Yeah, I wasn't going to say it, but yeah, I mean, yes, there's yeah. there is an implicit agreement there, you know. Yeah, 
and Israel's fascinating. We could totally talk about it. And I don't mean like I, I did not have nuanced views about Israel when I was 16 and 17 going on this this trip, which is part of frankly, part of the reason I didn't want to go on it because I was like, I, maybe in some sense, I knew I wasn't ready. <laughs> I was like, I'm just a kid. Why? Like, I'm not ready to see Israel Palestine. I don't know how to think about it. And I sense that everyone is irrational about it. And like, let me try something else. We could set that aside. I, I think I've been there since several times, actually. But if I can cut in real quick, yeah, it yeah. almost sounds like one of the reasons you kind of chose, you know, let's let's say Thailand or Ghana, right? Yeah. Is because you had no mental map of those places. Yes, exactly. It was like fresh. That you could start completely fresh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and or I knew my, my map was so bad. <laughs> like, you know, my map was like the Lion King and like National Geographic that it's like, I have no idea what I'm getting into. But yeah, so I came back and, and sort of was paralyzed. I needed to know more. I didn't know my place. I'll fast forward to, I went to Clark University. It's a liberal school in, in Worcester, Massachusetts. Got a grant to go back to Ghana. And the, the entire trip, the entire like creative plan was I went with two cameras. And I gave a camera to a 10-year-old kid who had really seen almost no TV before. Again, this is pre-cell phone Africa, so it's easier to find that. His name was George, and we just sort of hung out for a month. And I really let him do what he wanted with the camera, and I filmed him. It was this like meta kind of, it was more of a media creation piece than like a standard documentary. But I got to know him very well over that time. And one thing he said to me there, which sort of drives home this like paralyzing confusion, I was doing this long interview with him, and he was explaining to me how his great grandmother was captured, I guess, as a POW. I don't know that I don't know if he got the great, right? There could have been several more greats in there. But one of his relatives was captured and died in the slave castle. And he said it to me, lamenting it with this like sad face, because he's in his 10 year old sort of logic. He said, if she had lived, I would have been born in America, <laughs> which is all he wanted, right? He wanted, in his mind, America was this perfect golden palace where Everybody got what they, they needed. And my vision of Africa being naive, you know, like his vision of America was probably much more naive also because he was 10. But in his mind, that, you know, logic kind of makes sense. I would have been born as an American and his life would have been better. <laughs> but he, like hearing that of a kid wishing that his great ancestor would have been a slave because it would like, it's crazy, right? It's like, there's so much difficult about that to respond to, to think of as a white person, to think of as, I mean, anyone. I took him to the slave castles for the first time, Elmina slave castle, where something like 90 something percent of the descendants of slaves who ended up in America went through this exact door, the, the gate of no return, which is fascinating. It's sort of a pilgrimage for a lot of people to go to, but he was there filming it. Yeah, it was an interesting piece, but it was again, still me trying to figure out sort of what you know, it's my first like confrontation with that level of historical complication. And it continues to be kind of paralyzing. But where I came out of it, and I'll fast forward, and Uganda and Ghana are different, although not entirely. Both British colonies got their independence around the same time. Uganda's in East Africa, does not have the legacy of the Atlantic slave trade. What I started to really sort of lean into was this notion, and now I think we're we're sort of getting to the political implications of a lot of these origin stories, was not trying to snuff out the notion of tribalism, that me and this kid are different <laughs> and that matters in some basic way, but that how can we unite and relate in the kinds of structures and tribes where it doesn't matter, where we're the same. And so in East Africa, which I was having similar experiences in and traveling a lot, 
what I started to latch onto and be interested in was these notions of super tribes and a super tribe that transcends religion or race or whatever. And one of the really easy ones that I was super bullish on and still am is sports. Because sports is this, in its best conception, is a low stakes microcosm of sort of society. You know, it's like we make it up and <laughs> who wins the World Series and who wins the World Series really doesn't matter in itself. There's nothing at stake there to winning it, but we all really care about it. And it has this really strong way of grabbing on to our psychological bias towards tribalism and grabbing those levers and making us care about it, really care about it in the moment. We cheer, we cry, we laugh, and then try to achieve something. So it's these incredibly artificial tribes that get made where if you're on a baseball team and you are white and you're the second baseman and the shortstop is black and you need to turn a double play to get two outs, like it doesn't matter. (laughs) There's no racists at second base and shortstop because you want to get the out because this beautiful analogy of sports has hijacked that bias and tribe to put the tribe of whatever's on your shirt the Phillies, I'm a Phillies fan, or whatever team you're making up in Uganda or Ghana, that's the tribe that matters most at that moment. And it's not a religious one. It's a totally artificial one. And it's kind of proof that we can do that and drive it towards these collective goals. And so I became like really interested and then involved and then made this film years later about this baseball program in Uganda in East Africa, a place where, and just to put the pin here, Like the racism and tribalism within Uganda itself is crazy. For anyone who's been into Africa, like, you know what I'm talking about. I cannot tell the difference between the tribes, (laughs) but they certainly can. And they hate each other, right? Like the Bugandas hate the Acholi and hate the, like, and I can't even hear the difference in their language most of the time. But these are deep, old, strong biases and, and hatreds they have towards each other. And watching them play sports on these teams totally kind of erases it. And they'll root for each other no matter what. They'll root for the guy to hit a home run if he's not part of their tribe. It doesn't matter. There's a Christian-Muslim rivalry there. That doesn't really matter. Everybody sort of plays together. And so maybe it seems simple. Maybe it seems basic. But it, it really works. And it felt like this is the way to say, like, uh, to pierce through my paralysis of like, where do I fit into any of this? How do I get involved in any of this? And it felt like, oh, there's a path for me, right? Like, I'm this kid who grew up in Allentown who loves baseball. And there's this path for me to get involved here with something that really helps address this kind of problem. And in that, in that place, I have a place, right? In that structure, I have a place and I'm just as equal as them. And what they crave out of it, this is really lovely with the baseball thing or any sports analogy, and I'm sure we could brainstorm others, but what they crave in within baseball is equality. Like they want to play against the teams in America. And if they do, they just want to compete on a fair playing field. They don't want four strikes just because they're black or they're underprivileged or they have to play bare feet because they don't have cleats. They want the same rules as everyone else. And that's what they crave and what they really want. So, so what they want is, is to learn how to throw the best curveball they can to get the kid out at the plate, no matter what color or race they are or, or where they come from. And the data around sports programs in places like Africa, and of course, even just like in inner city America are really effective. That's been most of my involvement. And then I made a film, and I always say this, if people go out and find Opposite Field, it's a film about baseball. 
that happens to be in Africa rather than a film about Africa that happens to be about baseball. And I wanted that to be true and I wanted that to be intentional. And I, I won't, I could ruin the, the plot for you here. Africa gets involved a lot in the story. <laughs> a huge plot point in the story, and this will ruin some of the ending, is when the kids who win a tournament are denied visas to come to America to play because their birth certificates are all screwed up which is an African, like it's a reminder that the thing is still set in Africa, but it's almost a tragedy of like, man, they, this is a baseball story and Africa's getting in the way of it. And that almost should be an analogy towards, for me, how we think about things like liberalism, like what is getting in the way of the story of us really digging into these super tribes that connect us together, whether that be Americans. I don't know what other super tribes we can come up with, but it's like, what's getting in the way? of those tribes. And so that that's where I'm still at. And I'm borrowing a lot of that language also from Amy Chua. I'll plug her book, Political Tribes, and she does a great job sort of pointing to like super tribes and nation building. The data bears your experience out. There's this article that I shared with you before the recording, Are Humans Hardwired for Racial Prejudice from the LA Times? Hmm. It says, quote, the brain's response to race can be overridden by recategorizing people. As reported by Robert Kurzban at the University of Pennsylvania, Subjects shown a film clip of a mixed race crowd of people tended to unconsciously categorize people in the crowd by race. But if people in that crowd were wearing one of two different sports jerseys, subjects categorized them by team affiliation instead of race. In other words, if the brain evolved to make automatic racial distinctions, it evolved even more strongly to differentiate between Dodgers fans and Giants fans. And yeah, quote. I love it. And the whole point of the article is that, contrary to what some people might think, the brain did not evolve to categorize by race simply because for most of human history, there was no mechanism that would have allowed it to evolve in that way because most human beings until a few hundred years ago were not making any contact with people who didn't look like them. So there was yeah. no evolutionary mechanism which would have evolved a kind of fear response, right? So it's almost counterintuitively because in modern day, we like to think that these things are so intractable, but in fact, they're not really at all. They're a fairly recent invention. And this idea of creating a super tribe especially once you know how you can hack it, right? Through things like sports and common activities, right? Whether they be interfaith or quote unquote interracial or whatever they might be. It's fairly easy to bring people together uh, across kind of imaginary lines. However real those lines might feel, especially when people hold culture dear to them, it's much easier than we think to bring people across those lines. And in fact, I would say, and this is slightly tangential, I'm only going to throw it out there just to throw it out there. The stories that are being told in our media today are going against that project in that we have to be able to strike a balance between highlighting racial disparities and highlighting injustices while also messaging to the American people that we are in fact much more alike than we are dissimilar. And to your point about how you step outside of America and especially in countries that are, I guess you could say multi-tribal like countries in Africa, to an American sensibility, it is shocking because we are actively discouraged from thinking and talking that way in the United States. Like it is verboten, but I'm on dating apps right now. And I was on a, a first date with a, a woman whose parents were from Nigeria. Mm. And the way that she would just like casually talk about the members of different tribes in Nigeria and just, yeah. and just talk about their characteristics and their proclivities as if it was just fact. You're like, oh, I can't remember the exact specifics. This was a, a year or two ago. But She'd be like, oh, yeah, this tribe, they're very industrious. They don't really like education, but, you know, they're very kind of cunning. And I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> I had known this woman for like an hour and we were like having wine, <laughs> just casually talking. And she was just talking about this as if it was no big deal yeah. because 
when you grow up in a society that that is structured in that way, and people are used to talking about each other in that way, it is nothing out of the ordinary. But to an American ear, you kind of bristle at it because all of our programming, and I think it's good programming, all of our programming tells us to fight that instinct, to fight that very thing that says like, oh, well, because you are a blank, it means that I can make these assumptions about you and therefore categorize you in some way. Yeah. I wanted to go down that tangent because you said it's easy. I mean, it, it's easy, but it takes to hack these tribes and come up with super tribes or, or hack our, our psychological tribalism and steer it towards these universal, lovely kind of ends that, that we're talking about here. But it takes a lot of care and a lot of work because as, as a counter example, and probably people already are there, sports famously can overlap with all kinds of other tribes and then end up rather violent. <laughs> you know, people like hooliganism. Hooliganism, and as another example, in Africa itself, I was in Ghana years later on a different trip, and I always try to watch sports when I'm locally traveling around because I just think it's a, a great way to sort of make contact with culture, the good and the bad. And here's a little bit of the bad one. I was at a game, a soccer game in Kumasi, which is a, a trading town in the middle of Ghana, the Asante Kotoko, which is a local word that basically means like a hedgehog type thing. And they were playing against King Faisal. And the King Faisal team, you probably could guess, was a Muslim team. And the owner was Muslim and all the players were Muslim. And the Kotoko were really a Christian team, although not like officially, but sort of, it was sort of known that way. And it, it, it had broken down this way. And the game itself it was like a holy war in the stands and King Faisal team was wearing green and the Kotoko were red. The game ended up one nothing. But there was a tension that when I say like there's nothing at stake, usually in sports, like it felt like there was something at stake in that game that shouldn't have been involved in that game. And that actually awfully years later, there was a riot between those two teams in the stadium and it collapsed and like hundreds of people died. So like this clearly, these take a lot of care. And when you're talking about sports or nation building and talking about coming together in these super tribes, of course, can overlap and ignite terrible events. Basically, this thing in all of us, the tribalism, psychological, I don't know, again, feature or bug, although I'm going to make a case that if we say it's a feature or a bug, we're admitting that it's there. And then there's this instinct to be like, oh, we just have to get over that and stamp it out. Or pretend it's not there and operate as if it's not there. I don't think that it has to be either or in that way. Hmm. I think that we acknowledge it and we channel it towards something healthy and it, perfect. Yes, exactly. Importantly, it has to be and I spoke about this with Angel Eduardo in, in our episode. Yes. The importance is it has to be something that can be opted into or opted out of at will. And so I think to your point about the like how those two sports teams of different religious backgrounds that I think is a tragic example, but I'm not sure yeah. how relevant it is to the point you're trying to make, which is in that particular instance, the sports teams weren't serving to alleviate tension. They were serving as stand-ins for a tension that right. could have been more violent and eventually did descend into violence. When the underlying current isn't, oh, these are just two sports teams, but rather these are two religious ideologies, which are using a sports scenario to play out a wider and historical battle between these two sides that's not good. Not good. Yeah. I mean, it whips people into a frenzy. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Because it, it starts becoming a stand-in, right? And this can happen too with nation states, right? I mean, the Olympics, I think, is a very healthy way for nations to compete against one another. But you also have to be careful that it doesn't, 
And this, I think, is a responsibility of the leadership. You can't have it become hyper xenophobic or us versus that. You have to be like, hey, guys, like, this is a healthy alternative to what we could otherwise be doing. And like, we need to let bygones be bygones and like have beers afterwards. But I think that and you even see this with like cities in the United States where like one city will be competing against another city and things get like a little too hot and heavy. But I would say, and I think you would probably agree, is that it's not something we can ever rid ourselves of. But if I had to choose what I would think would be the best case scenario, it would be city against city, but each city is hyper multi-ethnic and multi-religious or whatever. And importantly, a lot of people don't live in the same city forever. So you live in city A and then you travel to city B and you know now you're wearing the city B jersey and you can take it on or off. doesn't mean we'll prevent violence forever, but I think if we were going to hack that in some way, and I want to modify when I say it's easy, what I mean is like right. the solution itself, we know what it is. It's not necessarily easy to implement, but it's not a mystery either. Yeah. The important thing to keep in mind is that with your analogy, it's like the game itself is the super tribe rather than the team. Right. Yeah. The teams are still like, it's still an analogy where the teams are tribes and they become tribes and you have a rivalry against the other team and you really hate them. You know, the language that you use is like, I hate that other team. We're going to beat their brains out tomorrow. But you hope the super tribe of this brotherhood of all being in the same sport is the thing that actually transcends that. And that notion of like, I hate the Dallas Cowboys because I'm an Eagles fan and we're going to we're going to crush them tomorrow is always still a little bit like tongue in cheek because we're bound by the rules of this is a sport and a game. And honestly, like that's hopefully the fun part <laughs> in some ways of the sport is, oh, I need you Cowboys fans to actually, in quotes, hate me as an Eagles fan, because that's I'm sort of getting off on that in this fun way. And then in turn, I will return the favor by hating you and calling your quarterback trash and blah, blah, blah. And we both kind of do this dance, but we're bound by this bigger super tribe of being football fans, or even if we're on the team, like being in the brotherhood of, of football players. That's the harder part of like finding the like, what are we bound by on these bigger analogies and these bigger kind of things like those Ugandan kids in the film, you know, they play against <laughs> the bad guys in the film. And this is in quotes, because I didn't set out to make 12 year olds bad guys, but sort of become the Saudi Arabian team, which are all Americans living in an oil base. <laughs> like you, you couldn't have scripted an oil company called uh, Dahram. It's owned by the Aramco. It's actually a city of 11,000 people, almost all Americans living in the middle of Saudi Arabia. It's fascinating their sons are playing on this team and they sort of turn into like the cocky bad guys in the film because they always expect to win and they always win. They end up beating. Now this literally, this sounds like a movie from the 1990s. I know. It's, <laughs> I, like, I didn't set out to do it. And they actually like, it's almost, it's almost amazing that it's this amazing. played out yeah. this way. Yeah, I know. And they were, the kids are awesome, but the coaches and the parents were kind of like cocky little assholes actually. So it worked <laughs> out but because they expected to win every year. They always did win. Mm -hmm. And the, anyway, it would turn into, a whole thing but the ugandan kids didn't hate them at all like the kids liked each other they tried to beat the crap out of each other when they were playing the game in the rules of the game by hitting home runs and playing hard and throwing their best fastballs but they didn't hate each other and they hung out after the game and like they were bound by this bigger sort of you know again low stakes analogy for things and it does have an ability to hack our sort of psychological instinct that we really are separated by these deep intractable differences with each other. But now to bring it back down to earth of where we are in 2021, even in the realm of sports, like what just happened in Georgia with 
baseball taking their their all-star game out of Georgia is I don't like any of this. I didn't like it when Mike Pence went to that Indianapolis Colts game and stood up after the national anthem and left because people were some of the players were taking a knee. I just don't at all like where politics and sports are starting to mix <laughs> in this very overt way because that that's the King Faisal versus Asante Kotoko like tragedy that happens is when the tribes start to break down in that way. Then you're turning this thing in all of us, this tribal kind of, I don't know, again, feature or bug, just feature of us, the aspect of us is very powerful. And it's neutral on its own. It's like splitting the atom. It's just a lot of power. But you could put that power on the back of a warhead or you could put it on the back of a spaceship and do one <laughs> lovely exploration, the other one terrible death and destruction. And sports is powerful and a bit of, a, I think, a canary in a coal mine seeing baseball do that. We see a lot of it in basketball and stuff. I hate it. I, I don't know what else to say about it other than I hate it. And it's... It's not the right battlefield. I like it when it's a protected analogy of what society could be, which includes tribes. Like That's why I like it. It includes tribes. It includes high emotions and tensions and rivalries, but it's bounded by a super tribe that we all sort of understand and agree to. That seems to be now the question of what does it mean to be an American? Is that super tribe? And I've gone down this entire path because I think, and you certainly agree with me, there's people who seem to make the case that we should just get over this tribalism thing. And that's the key to sort of solving all of our problems. And I think you and I are being like, that's, you know, great idea, wrong species. <laughs> like, that's not going to happen. And frankly, and I can make a philosophical case, probably is just like shouldn't happen is a bad idea. These kinds of tribes are affiliations with something like my dad who died five years ago was a huge Phillies fan. And that part of his identity brought incredible meaning to him and to me as his son. And our, it's how we bonded in a lot of ways. I mean, these kinds of tribes and people do this with their religious communities. People do this with families, everything are how we get a lot of meaning. And I think even with racial sort of tribes that are happening, there must be a totally healthy way to get tremendous meaning out of it without feeling like it's in conflict with the super tribe of being an American or keep extending the super tribe to being an earthling or sentient being or whatever we want to do. I don't know if I'm shadow boxing there that people are making that argument, but I've heard it enough of the tribalism thing is really the problem that I want to, I want to push back on it now. And now I think the conversation between you and I right now will probably drift into some more tangible and hot button issues that are related to this, that really take this hypothesis and go forward with it and push with it when we're seeing things like this United Airways, United Airlines, I don't know, or Delta, it was United Airlines that put out this commercial that said they're going to train 50% of their, I think it's their incoming, I don't know, training class somewhere they do to be women and people of color. And what is it really that mean? Is that a way to hack this? Or as I kept alluding to the way technology, and I kept saying pre-cell phone Africa, just I want to, as I, you know, I'm writing about this all the time about how technology and the ground beneath our feet is changing so, so rapidly that it's like an earthquake that we're having a lot of trouble finding our grounding with. And that is a particularly good example, I think, to shift the conversation from the sports analogy and taking the hypothesis that tribes are not only not going anywhere, but actually kind of good. Now, how do we hijack this into a direction that we want to take the world instead of what we're seeing out there right now, which is tenuous at best? 
Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I, I could keep going. <laughs> You're welcome to. I think, yeah, I'm in total agreement with you that denying our tribalistic nature is folly. But I also agree with you that it's not bad. And I don't even know if tribal is the right word, like factional or our our desire to form common communities. Our inclination, our preference to form factions of commonality can be hacked to do amazing things. I mean, it makes America what it is. If we didn't have that desire to form community, I don't think that I would exist. The idea that a woman of Armenian ancestry and a man of Irish ancestry could see commonality in one another as Americans and not even second guess marrying one another, I don't think would have been even possible or even considered realistic a couple hundred years ago. One, because they would have been so separated by geography, but two, that idea of finding commonality in people who didn't even share, I mean, they're both Christian, but like Catholics versus Orthodox Armenian Christians. I mean, they are basically different religions. They have completely different languages. They live in completely different climates. They have completely different cultural practices. And that idea that they could come to America, both assimilate into American culture and become so common in their cultural touchstones that they don't see any real division between their common goals and their common cultures. I think that's good. But I do worry that there are currents that are coming from a good place, a particularly liberal perspective, that are coming from a good place, but are actually working against the American project. And I'm sensitive to this because obviously people don't want newly arrived immigrants to feel like they have to abandon their culture. But, and this feels like a conservative point of view, but I really don't think that it is. The limited immigration, and I'm not even making the argument that we need to limit immigration today, but I think that the limited immigration that we experienced not making an argument in favor of the racism and xenophobia that drove the limited immigration laws. But I do think that the tightening of the American borders starting in the early 1920s and alleviated, I think, you know, 1964, 1965, that that period of time combined with World War II, obviously, that kind of had Americans of all different stripes and recently arrived Southern and Eastern European Americans kind of coming together with what Razib Khan would call like the basically original stock of Americans who had arrived pre-1800 and through the early and mid-19th century, that those events, the closing of the border, quote unquote, so to speak, and the world war that caused people in America to kind of see commonality in one another where they might not have, it clearly did not in the early 20th century when Irish immigrants and German immigrants were famously against America getting involved in World War I because they had sympathies to their home countries, right? And so I think this idea of creating a like a common culture in which people from all backgrounds can kind of see themselves in one another isn't that easy automatically, and that it does take some work. And again, this is not an anti-immigration argument, but there has to be something there. There has to be some mechanism there that encourages a kind of assimilation. And we can talk about what assimilation looks like specifically, right? That one that is welcoming, but also encourages a commonality. But I do worry that there is from a good place, you know, from a benevolent place, there is something that is potentially working against that assimilation project, which makes a child like me possible. Yeah, yeah. Well, there definitely is. I think if I could pull out sort of one thread with it, and it was to you, what you talked about with Angel of this sort of immutable characteristics, the opt-in, opt-out kind of tribalism that sports is, makes sense. <laughs> Some people would say like, 
if you're born to a certain family, you have to be a Mets fan or something, but like sort of a joke too, right? Like you're not going to disown your kid when they're a Yankees fan. There is this kind of opt-in, opt-out, and that's the part that feels liberal in a way and sort of this liberal dream that you could choose which tribe you want to be in and you could choose which tribe you no longer want to be in. But that is where the color of your skin or your height or your eye color or something like that is something you can't opt in or opt out of, right? And then so these are the kinds of tribes that become very, very politically charged and difficult to deal with. And why you, we've made that distinction well historically in America what I just said there, go back to your date with the woman from Nigeria. I'm very much wondering if there's going to be a second date now <laughs> that you've called her out on your podcast, but this was uh, early 2019. So I think we're, I think we're okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that boat has sailed. Okay, cool. But the way she was talking about those tribes in the immutable sense, but in the sort of sense that feels very opt-in for you, right? Like, wait, someone doesn't have to be that kind of personality, right? Just because of what tribe they were born in. The mixing of the two and the failing to distinguish those kinds of tribes is what set off alarm bells in your mind, being like, wow, like we don't talk like this at all. Like This is violating something here. And that seems to be what's creeping back into these conversations in these very, very unhealthy ways. But here we go. And now I'm going to try with that United Airlines thing to make I think a a bit of a point that's not being made that really is underappreciated that involves technology and what some people are maybe rightfully seeing as an opportunity to hack the same thing that we've been talking about all the time about how did you put it sort of it's not an implicit bias but sort of just a and not even an implicit racism just a bias towards sameness that we have as a biological human creature evolution answers this for reasons that couldn't be more obvious about a bias for sameness, a bias for, and it doesn't even need need to just be visual sameness. Accent bias is like the strongest bias that actually turns out beyond attraction bias. But the accent in someone's voice, if someone spoke the same language as you on the tribes, on the plains, when there was a lot of dangers around, you automatically trusted this person more than someone who didn't. All of this stuff makes total sense. It's ingrained in us. And so now we have it. So how do we talk about that stuff in relation to everything we just sort of laid out. And here's where I think it's it's interesting. Everyone, if we agree that that stuff is sort of in us and that we have an inclination just automatically towards people who sort of look and sound a little like us, especially as kids. So if kids see someone who looks like their parents a little bit in society, there's just a bias towards it. There's an attraction towards it. There's a level of trust towards it. That is something we can try to stamp out as they get older and and rightfully should to a degree, but also is something that is usable. And here's like what I mean. If you, as a little brown girl, see someone in society who could look like your aunt in a position of power and respect and a position of admiration in the community, we have to just sort of agree, like does something like the power of now I'm really just talking about representation. And representation in your in a community is not a zero effect. And I think everyone has to sort of admit that. And yes, again, we're talking about sort of dangerous kind of stuff here. And we're talking about, am I going to recommend quotas and all this kind of stuff? And then you fast forward to something. But if we agree that it has some kind of positive-ish effect on self-esteem of children who see that in their community, see that in their society, see people who don't look like them admiring someone who does look like their aunt does something, plant some kind of seed or confidence or something. If there's some truth to that, then you go to this thing of pilots, right? United Airlines is going to 
try to turn the dials and with a kind of affirmative action hand on the scale, create more people of color and women to be pilots. And of course, I saw a lot of this reaction that was like, this is nothing to play around with, right? Like, I'm not getting on one of those planes. Fox News did like, of course, because they, they of course they did, did like a 20 minute piece on this dumb thing. And we could talk about the maybe disingenuous reasons for United Airlines doing it. Are they just signaling? Do they really mean anything by this? Do they really care about anything by this? But let's give them some intention that they actually think there are good effects in society if this is a future that happens with more representation or forced representation in the career of pilots. And here's why it's a new, this is happening a lot more and happening very rapidly. It's a new kind of consideration because oftentimes, and we talk about this with affirmative action in schools and stuff, there's a trade-off there, right? You're like, wait, are you not accepting the best students to Harvard because you're, you need to accept X amount of women and people of color? Is that what's happening? And then are we not getting the best people in society in this kind of meritocracy version of things? Shouldn't we always be choosing just like the best pilot possible over these people? Because I don't want the planes to crash. But here's the thing. Planes barely ever crash anymore. I was trying to look at the data before we talked here. And it's like minuscule, especially when you put on crash incidences divided by miles flown, because of course, we're flying more and more than we did like in the 30s and 50s. It's like the graph is basically flat near zero. It's incredibly rare. And it used to be, you know, it was always rare, but it used to happen much more. And the reason why it's gone down has nothing to do with like humans becoming better pilots. Of course, it's the advance of technology. (laughs) If pilots are listening, they'll probably be upset. But to a large degree, planes are flying themselves. And that's what you want (laughs) from a plane. But we do still have a kind of leftover reverence for pilots in even a small way, especially for children. They have a reverence for pilots. The uniform looks kind of cool. Like they stand in the doorway when everyone's getting on and everyone says hi to them and like they're in charge. And, you know, they have these cool like pilot wings things on the, like on their chest and they look kind of cool and kids kind of look up to them. In the forties and fifties, it was a, one of the most popular answers to be, what do you want to be when you grow up was a pilot. That answer has slipped, but it actually hasn't slipped quite as far as you would think it would be. So in a weird way, you could be like, wait a minute, is this actually a place as a society to push this representation thing and grab this lever and little kids who look up to this position and it could be a confidence boost to them. And we might sacrifice a minuscule amount of merit of choosing the best pilots to do this, but the outcome of it will actually be some positive sort of reinforcement to little kids who suddenly believe in themselves or dream bigger because, hey, look, this person who looks like my aunt is flying the plane now, and I think that's so cool. If you agree that that's not a zero effect, the pilot thing is an interesting example to push on of a, because of technology, maybe a place to (laughs) grab that lever and pull it And I would bet so much money on the people who think that this is like a bad idea that we will not see a significant or even minuscule increase in the amount of human-aided fatalities of plane crashes because of this. I would bet so much money on that. And I don't think any single person who thinks that that move by United Airlines is a bad one would take the bet against me. I'll put that challenge out to all of your listeners. If there's anyone who wants to take a bet against me on that, like put the money on the line and let's do it. We can look at United Airlines data directly and we could do it. I don't think anybody would because you know that 
if you get on a plane right now, do you want the best pilot? Of course you do. Do you think it's going to crash? It really shouldn't. And this is not true of something like a surgeon. If you're going under brain surgery or whatever right now, and, and the last thing you hear is like, your doctor was a C student, but is there because of affirmative action or something like that's not the right lever to pull right now. But pilots is a particularly interesting one that feels pullable. And I think more and more professions and places in our society are shifting more towards this ability to grab the lever of representation. We could talk about this in film and who the best actors are and that kind of stuff. So it's a defense in a way, again, set aside that United Airlines may have done it for displaying their wokeness to try to pat themselves on the back. And this is really not what they're up to. But okay, that's the consequentialist argument that I, it's hard for me to see what I'm missing in that argument. I would push back incredibly hard against your line of thinking on that, respectfully, because if United Airlines in their tweet just said exactly what you said, people would go ballistic. (laughs) If United Airlines said, because the technology in airplanes has improved to such an extent where airplanes can almost never crash, we feel now is the perfect time to increase the diversity of our pilots. And so (laughs) over the next 10 years, we will be, I mean, think about it right? Of course, they can't say what I said. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. But like, I understand and emotionally agree with the gist of what you're saying. But I would come back with the story you shared about the Ugandan Little League team, Mm -hmm. right? Those 13 year olds, you yourself said, having spent how long did you months a year? Oh, God, Um, I filmed for like three years back and three years, right? So three years with these kids. You yourself said they didn't want four strikes. Right. They wanted the chance to play on a level playing field. They wanted the chance to compete with Americans and other kids around the world in a way where they could prove their talents, right? Where they could show their stripes. Mm -hmm. And so I think if the World Little League, I don't know what the official name is. Little League World Series. (laughs) Little League World Series, right? The Little League World Series. I'm sure my 12-year-old self is shaking (laughs) his head because I used to play Little League all the time. But if they came out with a statement and they said, Due to the underrepresentation of Ugandan children in the Little League World Series, we are now guaranteeing that every year the Ugandan team will play in the World Series. I would like to think, and I would love you to speak on this, but I would like to think that those children would have not liked that decision. They would have been deeply unhappy with it. Again, and I agree with the emotional thrust of what you're saying, but why I think that that line of thinking is not the right way to go is because while I agree that representation is very important, and it really does, I truly do believe this, it inspires people to become what they can see, right? I really do firmly believe that. But if you look at like the movie industry, and this, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, the women, people of color over the years, it's not an issue of them needing to have a kind of quota. It's that, in fact, for most of cinema's history, there was a reverse quota, a negative quota, that said that, okay, well, you know, 90% of the films that we're going to make this year are not going to feature a single black person. <laughs> you know, I mean, like pretty much up until, God, like the 90s, I mean, for a long chunk of time. And if we do feature them, they're going to be in some kind of like sassy sidekick role, or God knows what's much worse in the 1930s and 40s. And so I would counter argue that the correct way to go that will increase the representation that I think we both want, that will inspire children to become things that they perhaps today cannot conceive of because there isn't enough representation there. And I'm 100% with you on that. I think that it's merely about opening up the gates to the Little League team, let's say, Mm -hmm. and letting them walk through on their own merit rather than saying, well, now is the best time to kind of stack the deck because the technology is so advanced, the planes won't ever crash. Yeah. 
it's a point well taken. I just want to throw one complication into it because, and there was a few things, maybe I, I didn't put it out there. None of these things should be forever. And I think we're actually dealing with some of that in the affirmative action. There's some arguments of like affirmative action in schools was a necessary intervention that should have had an expiration date. And maybe it does. And maybe we're approaching it now and we're arm wrestling about it. Ugly, <laughs> if that's a word. But the one complication back to the pilot thing is, I don't have the details totally right here, but I don't think there was anything barring women and people of color to use their commercial language from becoming pilots over the last at least 30, 40 years, something like that. There may have been some backroom sort of wink, wink racism happening there, or maybe overt, I don't even know. But let's just say there wasn't. And it just wasn't something that for all kinds of other reasons in society, they're underrepresented to the population. And already, of course, women will always be underrepresented as pilots because they don't want to be pilots as much as men because it requires being away from a family. And there's all kinds of obvious evolutionary psychology reasons for that. But people of color, let's say black men, just weren't becoming pilots as they they would have if you would just would have rolled the dice in society. Some of that, a lot of that has nothing to do with aviation policy, I'm sure. A lot of that has to do with all the other kinds of things that we could think of, of educational disparities and income and disparities, and then other kinds of racism that actually were out in society. But to like rewind the clock, why we don't have a lot of black men being pilots now, some of that has to be factored into the fact that when they were kids getting on planes, they didn't see black men in the pilot seat. And so it never occurred to them. They never dreamt of becoming a pilot. And I know that's too simplistic, right? Like this is a small factor or whatever we're going to factor it in, but it does have some... I think there's truth in that though. Yeah. Yeah. Right. There's some truth in that there's like a residual effect of another generation where of kids where it didn't occur to them because they just didn't see it. They never had the spark of like, oh, I saw a pilot. Now I really want to be one. And that's a bit of a like, let's like put our thumb on the scale for this next generation because it didn't occur to them to a point where the generation after them of kids will see pilots who look like them and that it will occur to them. Yeah, I agree with you that What's hard to thread the needle in all of the conversations that you and I are trying to have now about sort of emitting psychological truths and sort of where do we intervene here is the jump, and you're right to point it out, that there's no institutional gate <laughs> that's blocking. There's no law that, that you need to pass to let black men become pilots right now. <laughs> like there's none, right? There's no legal work to do there. But if you followed sort of my argument there, there's some sound argument to be made of we want to put our thumb on the scale to grab the representation lever because it just didn't occur to the kids to become pilots 10 years ago we have to start that somewhere you know memes can get out of control like there's no sure law <laughs> there's clearly no there's no legal barrier against white people playing in the nba but clearly black players are massively overrepresented and some of that is due to genetic differences that people don't want to talk about but almost all of that is due to mimetic differences of where basketball is played the most and the heroes and representation and who wants to get good at it and status in your community if you're good at it or a way out. Like we could talk about all the other reasons why black players are hugely overrepresented to the population, but we don't have to pass a law to do that. Of course, because of the societal reasons, like there's no reverse sort of United Airlines of the NBA being like we're, we're, we're saving 50% of our developmental league to be white players. <laughs> it's because it, it sounds absurd because we sort of agree that it's not addressing some sort of 
historical wrongs or or whatever. But maybe some people want to make that argument. But I think it's a disingenuous one because you understand sort of the reason why the meme of why why there is no meme of black pilots that's as popular as white pilots or something like that. So I take your point totally that like the best communication of it is difficult. And I don't love the commercial as is either. I'm just trying to sort of make a consequential philosophical defense to point out that it is not grabbing at a ghost of a problem. There is a real lever of representation in our minds, especially children's minds that can be grabbed. And there's more and more fields where it's becoming grabbable because of technology allowing it to happen in a certain way. And also there's an expiration date on that because there's literally nobody on the train for the air train at the airport. It's a robot in almost every airport that drives that dumb thing around in a loop. And one day will we look at pilots more in that downgraded position of like babysitters for the plane? Probably, probably. But for now, because of this leftover Amelia Earhart fascination. Like Charles Lindbergh was like the most famous person on earth for a long time, even before the baby thing, because he was a pilot. Like that residual fame and status is a lever to grab that has an expiration date as well. And so I'm trying to make a half-hearted, I agree, like effort to defend the philosophy behind it and to point out the discourse as usual on Fox News and CNN and everyone else about it is just garbage, cultural garbage that isn't getting to this level of nuance that you and I are trying to do. So if someone's just hearing about it for the first time, you could go check what Fox News said about it. And hopefully this is like a million times better already. Uh, but I agree. It's like a, it's like a half-hearted defense. I, I'm with you and I hear your criticisms of it totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that you're touching on a couple of things here. One, that our national level conversations around topics like this lack nuance because what happens is a topic will be introduced, right? And it's not really even a topic. It's a view on a topic, but we mistake the view for the topic, right? So in this instance, it'll be like United Airlines has announced that over the next decade, 50% of all of its trainees will be women and people of color, right? So that's not really a topic. That's a United Airlines view and stance on the topic. And then that sets the center of gravity around where the discussion will happen rather than the topic actually being what it should be is if we want to increase representation, right? And that is a question in and of itself, right? But let's say we do want to increase representation for the reasons that I think you and I would agree are good. How are the ways, what are the ways that we can do it? And what are the best ways that we can do it? But instead, the conversation on a cultural war level doesn't become that conversation. And this can spiral out into things like how conservatives and liberals react to things like COVID vaccinations and stuff like that. The disagreement becomes okay, well, because that side is supporting this thing, I must then oppose it rather than the discussion being, okay, well, what would a conservative approach to increasing representation be? And what would a liberal approach to increasing representation be if both sides are interested in that, right? Right. But instead it becomes about the one view and then they have to pick sides and entrench. Yeah. And so I would say for my money, and I know you were more making an argument in defense of that stance rather than saying, this is what I, Jay Shapiro, believe is the best course of action. I want to make that clear. I acknowledge that distinction. But I think that for my money, a much better way to do it would be if they were to say over the next 10 years, and this is like a little bit pie in the sky, but if they were to say like over the next 10 years, we are going to send black and Latino and women pilots into schools, into elementary schools and middle schools and high schools. And we're going to set up kiosks and we're going to talk about all the amazing opportunities 
We're going to have scholarships available that are going to be hyper competitive in these schools, you know, within each school or within each school district, we're going to have these scholarships, but only the best who are going to apply are going to get in. But because these school districts might be 90% Latino or 90% black, the strainer, right, which is the scholarship will still capture the folks that we want to increase representation of. But it eliminates that implication, which you kind of made explicit, which is now is the time because planes are so safe, right? Like, I am against that. I just want to make it clear. I'm against it because of the implication, which is that representation is important, but it's even more important that Americans of all colors, and if I'm going to be explicit here, a certain category of white people, I think this is, I think I just kind of have to say it. It has to be very clear that the people who are becoming pilots or like name any job, right? They got there because they rock. And American history is full of examples like this. Black History Month, like Black History in general, like women's history in the United States is full of rock stars. It's full of people who not only were hyper qualified, but they were hyper qualified and they had to overcome so many systemic barriers that they're like all stars. I mean, Jackie Robinson is a perfect example of this, right? I mean, it's almost like a meme, like of how good he was. Not only was he one of the best baseball players to ever live, but he was the best baseball player. He was unbelievable PR. He had to put up with intense, entrenched racism that he faced not only within his own baseball team, but every single time he would play a game from the fans and the other teams. When we talk about excellence, like our history is full of examples of people who had to overcome intense barriers in addition to just being freaking amazing. Mm -hmm. And so like, I think it's important that we continue that tradition while removing the barriers, which is Americans rock and Americans of all backgrounds have what it takes to me. And and this is where it gets like this conversation can get so messy online because people will assume that when you're in opposition to something like what United Airlines is proposing is that you don't want diversity, which for me could not be further from the truth. It is intensely important to me. And this is why I've had so many people from educational backgrounds, you know, like Catherine Burble Singh, Ray Gurn, Matt Bateman, because how children are able to succeed and the opportunities we give children is something that's just like deeply important to me. And it is deeply important to me that we create a system, that we create a society in which anytime we see, I don't care who they are, anytime we see anyone in a position of authority and power, I want the very first thing that an American of any color thinks in their mind is, damn, that person probably rocks. Like that person rocks at what they do. And I am very afraid of any kind of scenario which would put doubt into the mind of someone, because that is ultimately a detriment to the person who's in that position. I want to continue the American tradition of realizing that Americans who get to where they are because of the excellence that they have demonstrated. And I I just, I want to preserve that tradition while removing the barriers that people like Jackie Robinson had to jump over in addition to just being an amazing baseball player. Yeah, that was good. (laughs) I think, I think what I'm trying to do is narrate as usual, sort of like the cultural moment that we're in. I hear your desire to want to preserve that. And I think what I'm trying to point out is that it's under strain, not just because of sort of the off the rails culture war that we're in. It's actually under strain because the truth of it is starting to crumble or the the necessity of a sort of merit based system to make sure we have the best people and the best jobs in many aspects of society is actually under strain because of technology and automation, et cetera. But all of your points are 
well taken there. And one of the great ironies of the ridiculousness of the culture war is what you're sort of pointing to is that you want to preserve that people earn it and that you can earn it because like there's a tremendous amount of meaning and value in earning something and working hard for something, earning something and getting there. And if people are rightfully noting that affirmative action or any of these thumb on the scale kind of in sake for the sake of representation, corrosions of a pure merit based system reduces that, right? Like, are you just at Harvard because of the color of your skin? And do you want anyone thinking that about you? And the answer, of course, is like this resounding no. It's precisely what the charge of white supremacy does as well, right? It's like they're putting a bet no one earned it, really. And that earning it is impossible because you're only the president because you're white. So can't take credit for that or anything. And people should understand what you're putting out there. But I do need to just sort of mention that I think, or maybe it is what is fueling the ridiculousness of what we hear in the culture war, is that more and more so, the world is maintaining itself <laughs> because of technology and because we are building systems that reduce. And we could talk about the implications of this that I think are awful for society and really fueling a lot of also the sort of Trumpism populism, reducing the necessity of human excellence at the wheel for a lot of things, and especially collective intelligent action where we work together to solve problems with all of our intelligence. Reducing the necessity of that to do so many tasks and jobs in society is allowing these conversations of, well, then I want the status, give me the status for being there. What do I need to do to earn the status to be there? I'm not so sure. It just seems the stakes are getting lower of who is the pilot. The stakes are getting lower in all kinds of fields out there. I don't know if you disagree with that, but it's a challenge to the kind of meritocracy that you're pitching. And I don't know if you if you read or, or saw Michael Sandel's book on the tyranny of merit. It's on my bookshelf, but I haven't read it yet. And I, I will be clear, I'm not making an argument in favor of meritocracy in terms of a systemic yeah. meritocracy. I'm merely making an argument that it is important if we're pursuing the project of diversity, which I think is a worthwhile one. It is important that we preserve in the minds of Americans. Hmm. And again, this is not like I have a ton of issues with the meritocracy system. I think as we as we conceive of it in the American mind, I think it's hugely flawed. There can never be a true meritocracy because life is not a perfect system, right? Like you're in the film industry. This happens all the time. You probably have a set of friends who you shoot documentaries with or shoot films with regularly, right? And I'm sure they're all talented in their own ways, but you're not hiring them on out of just pure merit. No. You're hiring them on because one, they're good, but two, you know them. Yeah. And so like these systems can kind of replicate themselves, especially in, in artistic communities like ours. It's like, oh, you know, I've worked with Jay like 10 times. I know Jay. I like Jay. And I know that when I bring him on, he's going to be an amazing cinematographer. And yes, like, could I interview 30 more people and potentially find someone who might be exactly right and perfect for this project in a way that Jay might not be because of his particular experience? Sure. But if we're 16 hours on a film set, and I like Jay's personality, and I know that he's rugged and whatever, right? And we've been in these situations 20 times before. I'm going to choose you. That in and of itself proves that meritocracy as we know it and understand it in the American mind is kind of a myth. Yeah. But, but importantly, I'm also not saying I'm going to hire Jay as a cinematographer because 
boys from Allentown, Pennsylvania are <laughs> underrepresented. Like we really that's the are. distinction that I'm trying to make, you know? <laughs> Me and Ben and all of it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I totally get it. And so actually, I want to stay on like the film thing. I think it's really interesting and and the actor thing. And Hollywood, I think the Oscars are coming up and, and will be dreadfully woke, I'm sure. Again, I'm just I'm just let's just describe things for a while and then maybe we can find solutions. But what we're talking about here, what I'm trying to lay out if there's truth to it, which I know you're not denying about sort of like the world is changing and things run themselves much more. I, you know, I'm exaggerating. I'm skipping ahead a little bit. I agree with you on that. Yeah. Right. Like, again, if anyone wants to take up the bet about the pilots and how many plane crashes we'll have, well, you put your money where your mouth is. I'm right here. But you know, I'm right. <laughs> Everyone knows I'm right about that. And more and more fields are looking like that. So what this is also fueling to talking about Hollywood and, and our industry of film and stuff is the cancel culture stuff that is just like off the rails in that level. What I'm laying out here is also behind that because if there's some kind of truth to what what I'm saying, and yes, like it's not like United Airlines is saying like we're picking names out of a hat <laughs> of black people and then they get to be pilots. No, it's like we're going to train them, blah, blah, blah. Like they're going to be competent. And if I'm saying like the bar for competency, maybe that's the better way to put it. The bar for competency of running society is lowering to make sure the planes don't crash, to make sure things like function decently enough is lowering. And so we have this opportunity now to talk about representation. And I've laid out kind of the psychological grabbing, grabbing the lever and pointing in right in good directions kind of argument that we could keep parsing. But what it's also doing is people sense that. And it also senses something like, let's say an actor, an actor in society, which there are really, really good actors out there. And you and I know that if we read a script and there's a role, you could come up with 50 really good people who could play the role. And they're all going to bring something a little different to it. But they're all, you know, at some level sort of subjective. And let's say the film's going to do well, no matter how many, whichever one of them is in there, they're all going to do like a good job. There is a sense that we as a society, this is a position in society that has great status, right? Being a Hollywood actor is like, it's a very much a top answer for what kids want to be when they grow up right now is being an actor, right? think fortunately being like a youtube star even might be higher but let's just say an actor it's a position in society that we know comes with it an almost level of royalty and we feel as a society like we're giving you that you're good you went to film school or, or acting school and like you're good but like we're granting this upon you we're, we're bestowing you this role of playing the superhero and so if you screw it like we, and we can take it away with the cancel culture kind of thing it's a reminder that like we can also just like take that away and guess what like we're still going to make movies without you because the system kind of runs itself and there's a lot of actors out there and so if a pilot for United Airlines, if that starts to seep in and that sounds familiar, because in Hollywood, that probably felt pretty true what I just said. But if that same system of like, you know what, we can make movies without you. You know what, we could fly planes without you, even though you're the best pilot in the world. Like, don't worry, you don't need to be that good. That same logic is starting to apply itself to all kinds of areas in society, right? Like, oh, you're a good comic, but we got other comics out there. And so we're going to cancel you because we kind of gave you that status so we can take it away. And like, what positions in society are genuinely unique to the point that requires a level of like insane expertise that if we take it away, people are going to start dying. Like a brain surgeon would still is one that is surviving what I just said. If the best brain surgeon in your town is kind of an asshole or maybe 
says some semi-racist things and you don't love him and you cancel him and he's the best brain surgeon in town and you somehow don't have access to other brain surgeons, like, yes, that's actually a legitimate problem and people are going to die. So very few brain surgeons are getting canceled as far as I know. But a lot of fields are getting canceled because of the same kind or subject to this kind of mob mentality of like, we gave you the status and we can take it away like that. Watch this with one tweet that could ruin you. And again, I'm not defending any of that. I think this is a terrible hellscape that we're living through. Don't get me wrong of this kind of culture war, but I'm describing the moment and trying to isolate like what is fueling it here. And then we can talk about how to fix it. But this is the pushback. And I think Sandel does this well. I'm excited for you to read the book. I don't think the answer lies in leaning harder into a myth of merit because it falls apart under the, and I don't want to open the free will thing, but it falls apart under the levels of shame for the people who don't make it somehow and the levels of resentment for the people who do and a level of I've really earned my place in society because I worked hard for it. That is also a myth, especially in America. I mean, he, he lays out, and I don't have them at my fingertips here, but he lays out incredible data on income mobility and class mobility and the stagnation and now retreat that America is having. Like the, if the American dream is your story of immigrants coming with nothing and making something of themselves and then their kid does much better than they did, that is becoming much, much more rare and an exception to the classic American dream. In fact, he makes a large case that that American dream is in Denmark right now, a place where they don't think they have it. But ironically, the data shows like class mobility is at a very low level right now. And I think this is because it does entrench itself. Like you said, my buddies are going to become my filmmaker friends or whatever. And if you went to Harvard, you'd go, it's going to be more legacy positions of society. And if we give people who went to Harvard the best jobs, it's, it starts to perpetuate itself. And so there's a lot of problems I see that are, again, underneath it, this rapidly changing society that more and more is running itself, that leaning harder into merit is not the answer in itself. And I know it's not what you said. Maybe it's the time to brainstorm on how we do what you're maybe suggesting of preserve the myth of merit, but still be aware that, listen, the planes aren't going to crash, even if we don't have the best pilots in the world out there. And so how do we do that? I don't know if I have the answers. I don't know if you have any answers to that, but I'm just, I wanted to push back on sort of the merit is what we need to get out of this culture war mess. Yeah. I mean, I think anyone who's worked in the film industry or an, or an industry in which friendly connections are kind of the grease on the wheels, so to speak, understands that pure merit is completely a myth. All it takes is to one, get rejected from a film festival and then see what films made it into the festival. <laughs> and you be, I mean, you know, I know you connect with that on a deep level. You're like, wait, they we're so wrong. <laughs> they chose these like yeah. I've, you know, I've, or you're at a film festival and your film made it in and you're watching the other films that also made it in. And you're like, wait a second. Yeah. And you're like, I, sh I totally should. It's because I slept with the film festival. <laughs> <laughs> or you're beginning to second guess the quality of your own film because some of the yeah. other films that are with yours are so bad. Yeah. You're like, wait a second. <laughs> yeah. what, what does that say about my work? Yeah. So yeah, it, it's not, I mean, the idea of pure merit, at least in most fields, right? I don't think that there's pure merit at all in any industry, but I think there are industries in which it's much harder to game than others. But I think a creative industry like ours is definitely, definitely not pure merit at all. 
man, you touched on the Nordic countries, which makes me want to talk about your <laughs> from is to us essay, but I don't know if we should go there just yet. But like, oh, it, it's interesting because you almost made a counter argument against your own conclusion in that essay. Hmm. But I mean, I think tangentially to the point you just made, my question slash concern is, I'll start with kind of a, a loose analogy. It's from a 1981 article in the New York Times entitled, Deficit Gives a Tarnish to Golden Gate Bridge. To quote from this 1981 article published before I was born, quote, 10 years ago, when tolls were 50 cents collected only from southbound drivers, the Golden Gate Bridge, which is the bridge that connects San Francisco from the rest of the bay, paid off the $35 million in bonds that financed its construction in the 1930s. But tolls were not removed or even cut back. They went up to 75 cents in 1973, then to a dollar, and on March 1st, 1981, will reach $1.25. The argument used to justify the increase is that without it, the multi-county bridge district will become penniless, end quote. And why I want to bring that up is when the toll on the bridge was initially instituted in the 1930s to pay for the bridge itself, it was actually kind of controversial because the citizens at the time were like, well, you know, the idea of paying a toll to go over a bridge was still rather novel. But it was pitched as, a, well, you know, this is to pay back the cost of the bridge. And then once the bridge is paid off, we will just remove the toll and it will return to a free bridge, the kind that you're used to, right? The problem is, though, is as I just said in that article, once the bridge was paid off, once the debt was paid, the government officials who had become used to that income stream decided that they wanted to keep it going. And so they found another reason to continue the toll, even though the original pitch for the toll was that it was only going to be used to pay off the debt incurred in building the bridge. And so the reason that I wanted to bring that up was I'm wondering how we bridge <laughs> the gap between what we both agree is an immediate need to increase diversity, to redress the systems, the structures, the barriers that left a lot of people out, either through force or through a lack of education in all kinds of, there's this essay, Them That Has Gets, where the perpetuation of discrimination actually doesn't involve or need any kind of active discrimination at all. It literally is just friends hiring friends, hiring friends. But if all those friends are coming from the same kind of homogenous zone, whether it's educationally homogenous, like your Harvard example, racially or ethnically homogenous, it's just the same guys or girls in the same neighborhood hiring each other over and over again. No animus has to exist for those things to perpetuate, right? How do we bridge the gap between that immediate need that we, I think, both want, which is to increase diversity and give people additional opportunities with, to kind of circle back to the initial part of our conversation, widening how we define the tribe to the point where we worry as much about Black representation as much as we do today about Irish or German or Italian representation? Because nobody knows those numbers. Like if I were to ask someone at Google, like, hey, how many Irish people are working at your firm, right? Like, hey, I need to know the stats on the Italians at Google, right? Like they wouldn't be able to tell me because we don't care. And we don't care. This could be a three-hour conversation in itself and the construction of whiteness and how Italians and Irish became white, yada, yada. I'm going to leave that there, assuming that the people who are listening, and, and I know you know this, right? Like the creation of that tribe, right, is fraught in many ways, but it was created. And so those differences became invisible and we never count those numbers now. And so I wonder how we get there, right? Because I'll use it as a modern day example, Latinos, right? Because I think importantly, that category is distinct from the American descendants of slaves because Latinos came here like my Armenian and Irish and European ancestors came here willingly, right? So they're willingly coming here. And so their story is one of, you know, an immigrant story. 
And in terms of media, I think Latinos are vastly underrepresented. They're about 20% of the US populace culturally, and yet their numbers are not hitting that in terms of how they're represented in media. That's another story. But there is a lot of discussion around this Latino representation across all industries. And I think it's valid. But I imagine an alternate scenario, Jay, early 20th century, right? 1910, 1920, around the time that my Armenian ancestors got here, and there were huge waves of Eastern and Southern Europeans coming in, along with others. I wonder about an alternate scenario in which the language that we're using today to talk about representation, specifically among immigrants, was instituted then. And I think that had that language been instituted in like 1915, with historical examples that could have justified it, the largest mass hanging in American history was of Italians. Irish need not apply. That sign is pretty much burrowed into the American brain. We understand that there was discrimination against every new wave of immigrants. It's kind of like an American rite of passage, a dark one at this point. But every new wave caused a backlash of fear and xenophobia, which then led to discrimination, violence, all kinds of things against new waves of immigrants, right? So there would have been ample evidence and generous reasons to institute policies that would have said, you know what? The discrimination against Italians, the discrimination against the Irish, the discrimination against, you know, the Germans during World War I, it has to stop. And the way that we can fight against it is by increasing German, Irish, Italian, and other (laughs) representations in different sectors of public life. We have to do it, right? We have to combat the anti-German sentiment that was rampant in 1914 and 1915. We have to combat the anti-Irish sentiment that was rampant in the late 19th century or the anti-Italian sentiment that was rampant in the late 19th and early 20th century. We have to combat it. And the way that we do that is by increasing representation. And we have to make sure that the representation is based on their percentage of the population. And if the percentage of the population of Italians is not equal to the percentage of Italians in whatever the early 20th century equivalent of a Fortune 500 company was, then we have to do the work. And I would posit to you that like the bridge toll, we would be living in that world still today. Because once you institute it, it can never go away. Right. Because you create interest groups that want to perpetuate that very quota. And I would say, and this feels a little fraught to say, I'm glad that there isn't, you know, anti-Irish or anti-Armenian or anti-Italian anti-immigrant sentiments. I'm glad that those have dissipated. But I am also glad that we don't live in a world where when I'm hired, let's say on, that someone is checking to see if I up their Armenian quota at their company. Like I am very glad that's not the case. And I worry that had these policies been instituted in the early 20th century, they never would have left us. I agree with you. (laughs) I I agree with almost. I, I, I do worry. And I'm trying to figure out a way that we can kind of bridge that gap where we address it. I don't know if I can address it, but I can complicate I think there's a problem. There's a more specific problem. What you said was great. It is a legitimate worry about these things getting entrenched and becoming sort of bully pulpits on their own. So with like, I think you use the phrase like need, a need to diversify. And I would just like switch that a little bit to just like, an, it's an opportunity to diversify. If there's a way to, again, grab that representation lever in little kids' heads and point it towards some good ends. And you're pointing towards a, a legitimate concern that once you grab the lever, it's really hard to let it go. And then suddenly bullies also have it and <laughs> it, it can become a cash cow or a status cow. Agreed. Totally agreed. But I'm making a lot of arguments that I don't fully agree with, <laughs> which I like doing actually on your side or trying. I find it a really useful philosophical exercise to like do my best, I guess, in the classic steel manning way to actually defend and talk through something that I'm not even sure I'd agree with. But you brought up immigrants in that entire response and you kept using immigrants as examples and Irish and historical immigrants. And I think we have to actually reckon with, and this is very much a 
also underappreciated point that the BLM movement at the moment is not doing a good job themselves of expressing, but descendants of slaves, <laughs> putting it that way, or African Americans or Black Americans are not like the other immigrant sets that you put out there. And we can see that and agree that because they were immigrants against their will, which just cannot be called an immigrant. Or of course, they themselves were just born here, just like us. So, we can get to the sort of choice problem. But at some point in their lineage, there was an ancestor that was against their will, brought here against their will, a reluctant immigrant. Obviously, the irony of me bringing up like that kid in Ghana who wishes that his ancestor was a reluctant immigrant because it's worked out so well here compared to what's happening at home, set that aside for a moment. But we do have to acknowledge that the Black American experience is a different origin story than my relatives. And my, you know, mine also came, my ancestors that were the first to cross the ocean were around the same time as yours. They were Jewish immigrants fleeing sort of Eastern Russia, although not even fleeing, they left before it got too bad. Anyway, different. We have to sort of admit is different than the American slavery story. And what we're dealing with there, and I've done this on a few other podcasts, but I think it's, it's worth laying out with you is the pointing to that there is a real philosophical problem here to solve and a real moral problem to solve specifically about Black Americans and their history. In legal terms, it's called unjust enrichment. You'll hear it as the problem of unjust riches in philosophy seminars and stuff, but it's really simple. And there's this great example that makes it simple. If you, Jonathan, if you are living in a shabby home that needs a new paint job, and so does your neighbor, and you come home one day from the grocery store and find that someone is painting your house, there's like a crew painting your house, you are aware that you didn't hire anybody to do this. And you're pretty sure that your neighbor did and that they're actually at the wrong address. And they're like a quarter of the way through the job. They've done like part of, of the house. But you're like, well, this is a great fortuitous event because my house needs a new paint job. And you go home and go inside, don't say anything and put your groceries away and click your heels and watch a ball game. And then, you know, a couple hours later, there's a knock on the door and it's the painter and he's like, hey, here's your bill. And you're like, oh, I didn't hire any painters. Uh, you must be at the wrong house. I don't know you a cent. And he's like, well, like, what do we do now? He actually can sue you under this legal doctrine of unjust enrichment. And there's not many things that need to be true for this to happen. There's a couple just sort of categories. One, there needs to be an enrichment, which you got because your house needed a paint job and now you got it. There needs to be an impoverishment, which is him being like, I spent all this money and paint and labor. And that's an easy one. There needs to be a connection between the two. Also quite easy in that case. There needs to be no moral justification for it, which is, of course, you knew about it. You didn't stop him. So, you should have. There's a moral justification. And then five, and the big one is that there's no legal remedy for it, meaning there's no contract. You don't have any contract with this guy. You didn't hire him. So, he can't just like take the contract to a judge and being like, look, Jonathan broke the contract. Quick point of clarification. And this question is, is completely disconnected from any analogy you're making. So, I want to make clear that I'm not yeah, let's do it. My question is mostly just one out of curiosity. Let's say in that scenario, the paint job was finished before the person got home. Yeah. That'd right. Be so different. the person didn't even know that it happened. Yeah, yeah. Can the painter still sue? Not as successfully because he can't prove that there's not a moral justification for it. You can say like, well, like he just screwed up. And so this is his bad break. But yeah. That's an important part of the story as well of sort of like a moral justification or 
that would give you a justification for not paying the guy. You wouldn't be forced to. What if you're like, I don't have any money. I didn't want to hire a painter. That's why I didn't hire one. And now you're forcing me to. But no, in this case, it's like you let it continue. Let it happen. Yeah. And, and my it, question is completely disconnected from the historical analogy you're making. But I, I would just I was no, just curious. But, no, but it actually probably we can easily make it when we do it. Because yeah, so of course, again, yeah, to finish, the judge would rule and you would lose this case. The painter would win and he would set some costs that you owe him and you would have to pay him. And it might not be the full amount because it might be like, well, you know, you weren't expecting to pay this. And maybe he had done a quarter of the house already. So so you're like, we're going to prorate everything that happened before you knew it was happening. Whatever it is, the judge will come up with something. You'll both leave not fully satisfied, but satisfied. And us watching that as a society happen gives us a kind of sense of justice was served, right? Like in some sense, that's the best we can do. Not so bad. But the big kicker, and you've got it with the historical one, is when you stretch that out over a long amount of time, like if that happened to your great grandfather's house, and let's say he then sold it and made a bunch of money because this paint job was so good, and then that money trickled down to you and you're benefiting from it, and the grandson of the painter was like, super impoverished because this like broke his business and now they're living on the other side of the tracks like the butterfly effect starts to happen and the universe goes on and then can that guy sue you or does he have a moral case against you like suddenly this starts getting complicated and the links between the initial harm being done and the impoverishment and link between impoverishment and enrichment there starts to get more and more indirect until we're several generations later but this is all to say, like, there still is a sense of injustice, right? If we had intervened at the beginning, it's easy, right? If you had reparations or something, this is sort of the analogy we're talking about here, right at the beginning. Right. 40 acres and a mule. Yeah. If something like that, and then wanting to extrapolate what that's worth now, which I think, what are they, it's like $15 trillion or something in today's money. If you can intervene, if there's sort of, and that's why some of these conversations are really important in other countries, globally, like what happens in Rwanda after a genocide, all these kind of things, there does seem to be, for a sense of real quote-unquote justice, a bit of an expiration date on how quickly you can pull the trigger on making that sense of justice actually like manifest. But we didn't do it here. And in fact, and you can make these cases, like the best cases for reparations, try to start with that original harm that we could all agree happened. And make the connections to today to be as direct as possible. And if you can do that through like the Jim Crow laws that came out that just draw the straight line to today's descendants and use like the war on drugs as another part of it in the prison system, you know, you're basically trying to draw this straight line back to the original sort of problem. But all of this is to say, I'm not trying to erase the nagging sense of being born and not asking to be born with this problem, but inheriting the problem of benefiting from an original sin or unjust enrichment or being in a different place of society that you can try your hardest to trace back to some original thing. That's what we're dealing with now. And it's almost an undealable with problem. Like I don't have an answer to that problem with the painter and no one does. And the legal system doesn't, and we really don't. And so we're looking and searching desperately for ways to address that. But all of that, and maybe that's that goes back to like the status and representation and being like, well, the form of reparations now is like 
we get to win all the Oscars this year or something like, like, I I don't think this is going to give anybody a sense of real justice, which is just a real damn shame. So that's kind of like, you know, a John McWater point of like, what will be good enough? What does the world look like the day after you draw this connection and write the reparations check? I don't think, I just think it's a tragedy that we didn't do it in the amount of time to give that sense of justice. And, And now we're, we're scrambling for it. And because of technology allowing us to have pilots be maybe a place to pull the lever. It feels like a lever to pull. It's suddenly an opportunity, maybe, if you do, if you look at it in a positive way. But with that, the technology is doing one other thing that we, we wanted to talk about, which is somehow making it more possible to make these lines more direct to these kinds of harms. In fact, I mean, you could do this yourself just thinking about all of the technology and all of the information you have about what you're doing today. You gave me the line before we started talking of like the personal is political. It's like you driving an SUV today and burning more gas than maybe would be you would do if you had a hybrid. Because of what we know technologically and because of the information network that we're all in, you could try to draw this line between like contributing to climate change and suddenly you're killing somebody on the shores of Tanzania or something because of climate change and you flooded his you know, that hurricane that just hit over there, that was actually you. And like, there's a direct cause that you did it. These kinds of connections are also feeding into this like sense of guilt and shame and unjust enrichment of the affluent that is, is again, real and findable through these kinds of philosophical sort of endeavors. But the problem is, again, the sense of justice is not nearly as easy as people insist or think that they can find it. And maybe people know that. And that's why they're bullying each other a bit these days, because there is no end to this. And it's become a bit of that Golden Gate Bridge problem that you mentioned. But that's a description of a real problem, the unjust enrichment over time that is unique. Is I mean, maybe not entirely unique with like Native Americans, but unique to the Black American experience, where I do think it's important in your defense of these American super tribes and systems to separate them as a different type of immigrant story than anything else out there. And sometimes we have a, a tendency to overlook that. And I, I think it's a mistake. No, I completely agree. And this is a conversation I've had with folks on Twitter repeatedly. I do think we have to separate out Native Americans and American descendants of slaves from people who came here willingly, right? Because although the Native Americans story is different, from story of Black Americans who were brought over here against their will for slavery, there is a common thread, which is they were acted upon rather than actors who like willingly did a thing. And you, you know, I mean, of course, you could mentally extrapolate this well, where the Irish who were escaping the potato famine truly making a free choice and mm-hmm. yada, 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 right? But like, the fact of the matter is, is that there is a clear line you can draw between what the American government or the pre-American colonial government was doing in terms of their relations with the Native Americans and their relations with Africans they were bringing against their will. I do think that's an important distinction. In terms of unjust enrichment over time and the problem of redressing harm, I mean, I think one of the things that you can do, and it's not a perfect solution, but because I, I, I don't think there is one, but I think what you can do, and I think you kind of touched on this, is you can look at stuff that has happened within recent history and try and give reparations for that. And I think one of the um, examples that I can think of off the top of my head is, I'm kind of just freestyling here, but like, let's say the federal government offered to purchase homes in formerly redlined areas from anyone who has lived there for a certain amount of decades at above market rates, 
right? Because we can all see that greater mobility is a key to achieving greater equality and purchasing a home at an above market rate acts as a reparation, which is linked directly to a harm that we can all agree happened, right? And so in those instances, you can have, you can literally give that reparation, so to speak, quote unquote, to someone who's in their 50s or 60s or 70s, who was victimized by an action that was taking place not that long ago, or at least to their sons or daughters, right? And that's much different from the great, 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 you can keep going forever with that. But in terms of recent history, I think that there is plenty of data, whether it's redlining or other uh, discriminatory practices. Another thing you could do would be taking a descendants of anyone who anyone who served in the military and didn't get to see the rewards of the GI Bill because they were left out because of their race or ethnicity. You can offer that to their children or grandchildren. I mean, again, that's also recent history, recent enough that I don't think there would be pushback to it. So I think that there are ways to go about this. I think the reason that it would be controversial, right, is that not every black American served in the military, not every black American was redlined, right? Not every white American participant. Yeah, I mean, like, right. And that's where it gets dicey. But it's an imperfect solution to a to a (laughs) an incredibly fraught problem. A real problem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in all of this, I mean, we're talking a lot about like racial tribes and stuff and and getting to what I think, if we're looking for sort of for political analysis and political forecasting, what tribes and like, where the fault lines really seem to be drawing we hear so much about race but it's it's class and it's going to be class which intersects and mixes with race all the time in these really fraught ways as you mentioned when that comes because it's a crazy thing to talk about reparations and representation to white americans who are struggling who also feel okay (laughs) i'm sure they think slavery was pretty bad but guess what like globalization wiped my job away and i didn't choose for that to happen either in this awful sort of analogy that I'm that I don't want to make because I don't want to get in trouble. But it's like the slavery was imported here and then sort of went offshore and took my job with it. It's like the, the ship just kept coming past me. And I'm a victim as well. And so everybody is feeling sort of victimized and insulted and looked down upon, except apparently like the coastal elites who seem to be clicking their heels and having this good time and must in some ways have some guilt about it because that's why they're, you know, I think freaking out about all these kinds of things (laughs) that we've been talking about and coming up with these awful solutions to try to alleviate their guilt of being the winners of this kinds of thing. But to demand that all white people are the same tribe or culpable in any of this stuff is obvious garbage. And it's garbage to them, it's garbage to you and I, but you can make an argument for it. But I think that's, and as someone who studies philosophy, being able to make an argument for something doesn't mean that it's the right argument or it's a good argument. But like I've done a lot in this conversation with you of like, here's the best sort of defense of what would justify this kind of thinking. But that I don't want to confuse anyone of thinking like that is the right answer or the solution. It's just to sort of hopefully add some language to the conversation so we can find a way to talk to each other again over any of these topics. I will yes and what you said. It is so intertwined with class. And I understand why people are resistant to a class-based resolution to this issue. I mean, like you could you could very clearly do a lot of good in majority, minority, I don't like that term, but to use the lingua franca, so to speak, majority minority neighborhoods by just saying, okay, every single neighborhood in America that is X amount of percentages above or below the poverty line, 
We are going to send an influx of cash in the form of infrastructure and schools and roads and economic opportunities and private business investments and yada, 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 right? If there was some kind of like national multi-trillion dollar effort in which that was the standard, I think it would be fairly uncontroversial because of its just class-based, quote-unquote, colorblind nature, and because it would also scoop up a lot of Appalachian whites and poor whites and, you know, poor Asians and poor Latinos and et cetera, et cetera, right? But it would also disproportionately, in a good way, affect Native Americans and American descendants of slaves, right? But I think why there would likely be pushback against that is because I think, and I'm very empathetic to this, part of the reparations discussion, and I don't necessarily want to go down a whole rabbit hole of reparations, but I think part of the discussion is the need, the desire to feel seen and to be recognized explicitly rather than, well, yeah, okay, I understand my life's getting better, but I actually want you to specifically address me, not everyone who is poor, and yes, it will disproportionately affect me. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm talking about. And I'm speaking in terms of someone who might be arguing this, like there is a debt owed and you making it universal doesn't really address that pain that I'm feeling. But to kind of yes and your point, I think that why it is class and race in addition to what I just said, and I think about this a lot, I definitely think about this a lot more than I used to, let's say seven or eight years ago. You know, like you and I've never met, right? And yet I didn't bring you on and I doubt you would ever bring me on to like your podcast, let's say, to talk about our differences as Jewish and Armenian Americans. Yeah. We would not dedicate multiple episodes for me being like, Jay, tell me about, I mean, like we could talk about it, but if we listen to like a lot of podcasts that are out there and I've had a lot of episodes that talk about this specifically because I bring guests on to talk about identity and those guests often happen to be black. But they're specifically talking about those issues in their day-to-day lives. So, it's kind of a marriage of intent there. But I'm bringing them on to talk about it specifically because of their background, where I would not be bringing on an Italian-American to <laughs> to talk at length about their identity because of the very nature of the fact of how America was constructed. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to give another, like, as another example of how, what I mean by, like, class and, and race getting twisted and fraught in such difficult ways as I think it relates. I was I was in Iowa poking around a story that I hope to do actually in complete COVID sort of threw a wrench into it, but really interesting things happening in Sioux City, Iowa. <laughs> but one story from their history that I think is illuminating about, again, how quickly the world is shifting beneath our feet and how maybe badly or or just rationally we're actually responding to it and comes out in such ugly ways and protective kind of ways is the biggest industry in there in like the 60s was meat packing which is literally like actually i had no idea kind of what it was until i was like wait is this literally just like packing meat and it is it's putting meat in in cardboard boxes and this was like a huge innovation i think it was really the refrigeration of the trucks and being able to pack more inside of them or whatever but this was the big industry was a meat packing industry in sioux city and this was dangerous crappy difficult work people would get hurt a lot there was saws and things happening there and a huge white population lived in sioux city and they worked there and they got in in a very nasty a union fight with the ownership demanding safer conditions and better wages they knew how much money the the company was making it was doing very well and they they unionized and these fights we forget how nasty these fights really got in america like the story of union 
fights in America is crazy. People were literally blowing up each other's cars in their gas tanks if they were crossing the picket line <laughs> to go work there that week. Like 13 people died like in a couple months. Crazy. And it got very nasty. And so what did the company do? Like they dug their heels in. And they said, fine, like, if, if you aren't going to work here, we're going to find workers who will. And they literally went across the border and bust people in from Mexico <laughs> to work the factory. And of course, then this raging class war fight looks from the outside to be white people yelling at brown people for stealing their jobs and crossing the picket line when, of course, they're just poor Mexican workers who can't find any work anywhere and are glad to have anything and are suddenly getting yelled at by, you know, white Americans. Right. The story could have played out identically if instead of Mexico, they just went to the town over, which was more impoverished and bust those people in and they had, they were of the same race. Yes. And the animosity, they were already literally blowing each other's cars up and they were white. So like this was, but then you suddenly get this overlay an aesthetic of an anti-immigration thing. And again, a lot of it comes out that way. I'm not like excusing the language and I'm not trying to make these people into philosophers who are really just angry about class. Like these things intertwine in our own mind and in their own minds. But the aesthetics of it, imagine CNN covering that right now, it would be a story about race and a story about racism. And, and you would lose and miss the real story there, which is about globalization and the fact that because of technology, maybe a bus in that regard, this company could do that. And then in the end, of course, that industry went away and unions famously drove a lot of companies or industries out of those areas because they could just go across the border and suddenly start working there. And so you have what looks like aesthetically this race problem and it puts the seeds of racism and all this kind of rhetoric that happens there that really is about a class problem but to your point about wanting like an apology or wanting to be seen i think that's a huge huge point for everybody right like so much of what i've been talking about on this podcast is pointing to how technology and the shifting society has made more and more of us feel like because i gave you the example of an opportunity with a pilot because I'm kind of said that pilots are a bit replaceable now, which is terrible, right? Like it's, it's a terrible word and a terrible feeling to feel replaceable. But I wonder how much of us feel replaceable or have the sense that we're replaceable to what has become the machine that proved our mattering, which back to your merit point has been the like, what are you worth to society? Financially, like what are you worth to society? And if you are a, a replaceable part now, that feels terrible. And I think more and more people are feeling or sensing a kind of replaceableness. And I have also pointed out in this conversation with something like Hollywood, there's a kind of truth to some of that. Like who gets to play Spider-Man is a bit replaceable. It's of course where something like cancel culture lit on fire. But that is the reason the replaceableness that we sense about our jobs and about our place in society, that cancel culture is finding more and more targets to throw their darts at because society is not as much at stake. Society is not going to crumble if someone else plays Spider-Man next time <laughs> because the last Spider-Man may have made some horrible error or something. And it's not great. Again, this is a description of a of a bad situation, but it's a situation that if we could get under it and maybe find solutions, it's noticing that what we're really after there is a sense of mattering because we don't like feeling replaceable. We're all vulnerable to this because more and more of us are feeling 
Like we can be replaced. Like the Sioux City workers were replaced. And that feels terrible. And I don't know where the acknowledgement will come from that we are important and irreplaceable, non-fungible, to use the hot like NFT word, but non-fungible pieces of the world other than to each other. And I know that's like this hippie-ish thing to say, but it seems to me, and again, this is why I'm sort of hesitant of the like, we need to find the solutions in a merit approach. I think the solutions are more, I don't know how this is done either, but in a communal approach, how we are actually going to matter, we have to define that less economically, less the success in the marketplace, less how much money you make, less how important you are to like your town economically, but how important you are as a person to other people. I mean, that's why I do favor UBI, but what it does miss and skip over is your point of like, well, what about the apology? How do individual people feel seen in that? And it it can't be white people at BLM protests, like kissing their feet or washing their feet or whatever. It, it just that can't be something so absurd. <laughs> and I don't know if we're ever going to be able to deliver it in any way other than just a like, sorry about that. <laughs> you know, like, and, and there's no one good to apologize. Like, I'm not the slave owner, neither are you. Sorry about that. I'm sorry we're in the situation. But the only way we're going to find our way through it is to find out how to matter, because that's what we want. If our biggest fear is being replaced, then how are we going to matter? And I don't think it's by leaning further into a merit-based system because they're all under attack and rightfully under attack by a wave of automation and technology that the world will sort of run itself. But then we're going to have to matter to each other to a large degree, I don't know, through art or through whatever means it is. But as much as you and I are probably pessimistic and about direction society is going, weirdly, I don't think you and I are pessimistic about the planes crashing, right? Like, And that is a different kind of thing where in former societies, if you rewound the clock 500 years ago, there weren't planes, of course, but those two things were much more interlinked. It's like society will go and the buildings will crumble. This is more of a like, we are driving towards a dystopian type future where there's roofs over everybody's heads, but everybody is fearful of each other. You mentioned that sort of, we're all living in fear of being canceled by each other. We're living in fear of sort of being scolded for not wearing a mask outside, which we we didn't sort of address like that point that you and I both have this like bugaboo about. And that is a future that feels just awful. And maybe I've talked myself into a solution where we all admit we're replaceable and bond over that. Like maybe maybe that is the, or the old sense of replaceable. In the economy, we are replaceable. And that was this, not to, to open up a Hannah Arendt thing in the last sort of part of our conversation. If that's where we're getting our worth and merit from, if those th- two things are tied, that merit equals moral value, that needs to be redefined to a place where like, no, we actually are replaceable in that global economy sense. And that's good because we've replaced it without us. But the area where we're not replaceable is this more intrinsic human, we need each other, we have to love each other and hippie kumbaya kind of future. And that's not a merit-based thing. Like the nice part about that one is no one has to earn it other than being a good person or other than being like loving people and one another and being forgiving or whatever. However we define that, like what is a good life? It's not about your 
skill, your accidental skill, which might or might not be worth anything in the marketplace. Just that there one I know I've been talking a while, but one of Sandel's best points in that book is kind of the luck of LeBron James, who happened to be born. Of course, he worked for it a lot, but also born with a lot of talent including also born with the desire to play basketball, of just being like the perfect basketball specimen and being born into a time when basketball was an incredibly popular and lucrative field to go in. Whereas like 700 years ago, maybe arm wrestling was the great or Greco-Roman wrestling or something was the equivalent. Uh, And LeBron, just that skill didn't translate as well. And so admitting the like ultimate role of luck in the economy in that way is also an important thing to do about the the replaceability and fungibility that we all have in the world that we're clearly building, and I would argue should build, we need to find areas that we are irreplaceable, non-fungible tokens, which has to be to each other. (laughs) Just in that social sense of we matter because we matter to each other, not we matter because we made this much money and I went to Harvard and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I completely agree with you. It's a problem to solve. I'll circle back to a topic I I spoke on in the beginning of this conversation, which is how America's restrictionist immigration policies kind of, in my view, right, kind of helped to create what became the American identity. And again, this is not necessarily an argument in favor of border restrictionism, but I think it is instructive in that in the early 20th century, before the borders were basically closed, there was a wave of progressivism that was attempting to get welfare, like social welfare programs passed, right? The problem was, and you can look at the historical documents here, history just keeps repeating itself because you can read some of this stuff and the language is different, right? It's a little more old timey, but the arguments are the same. There was massive, massive waves of of immigration. It was about 15% of the population at the time was foreign born, about almost where we are today. And every time a progressive in the early 20th century would argue in favor of more social welfare, the counter argument, as you can probably or anyone listening to this can predict, is that classic us versus them, right? The argument was, well, I want us to get this social welfare, but I'm worried they will get it too, right? And here's the thing. Once the borders closed, and this predates the Great Depression, some of this um, reform and some of this public sentiment around more social welfare predates the depression. It started happening in the mid to late 1920s as well, is once there was no quote unquote fear of them getting those benefits and you could solely control that it was mostly going to be us getting those benefits, even if that us also included literally all those immigrants who just arrived like five minutes ago. Yeah. Not only, and this is instructive, not only did support for social welfare programs go up among the native born, Support for social welfare programs among recently arrived immigrants went up even before the borders were restricted. Support for social welfare benefits among immigrants who'd arrived, let's say, 10 years before the most recent immigrants was low because there was that human instinct of, well, yes, I want them, but I've been here 10 years and I don't necessarily want Joe Schmo, right? You know, who arrived here five minutes ago to get it too. It's that weird tribal human nature thing, right? Yeah. But I do wonder if we need to game that in some way. And whether yeah. it's border restrictionism or something else, but what I what I would say to go back to your example of like the kind of union busting that the meatpacking plants were doing, we see that happen today too. Like that's literally happening now with undocumented immigration in places like Georgia and elsewhere. They're bringing in people from across the border, people who want to work hard, 
have dreams for their families. I don't begrudge any of the individuals who are coming over here, right? It's not about them at all. But what has been lost in our discussion and why I think it's fracturing what the idea of being an American or an American identity is, is that we are no longer talking about, well, what about the Americans who should be getting paid a good wage for that work? Like we should be putting pressure on companies in the same way that like, there's all these campaigns for like $15 minimum wage at McDonald's, right? Like that's a, that was a big movement a few years ago. There were strikes that would happen in McDonald's. Like everyone would strike on one day and like $15 minimum wage. Same with Walmart. But when we turn that attention to a pl- like a meatpacking plant or a clothing plant in the middle of Idaho, let's say, wherever it might be, that is mostly filled with undocumented immigrants who, again, I am empathetic and do not begrudge anyone who's looking for opportunity. But lost in that discussion is the idea of, okay, well, perhaps we should define some kind of us that isn't xenophobic, but does in some ways put a priority on taking care of whoever we are. And I know that there was this tweet that I wrote that you kind of called out pre our discussion where I said, in a diverse country like ours, where we do not share common ancestry or quote blood, citizenship is the crucial binding element. You are American and I am American simply and only because we are American. And I wrote that because I was kind of thinking about this topic. It's actually really important that we emphasize the importance of citizenship as making us both Americans, making all of us Americans, because that kind of is the only thing, right? Like we all agree, like it shouldn't be religion. It shouldn't be race. It shouldn't be national origin. It shouldn't even be language, right? Like what should make us American is that we're American. Hmm. And if that starts to fray, if it starts to be like, well, whether it's Americans or not, or if it's Americans losing out on this job, like that's not really important. We have to have sympathy for X, Y, Z. Yes, we should have sympathy. But I worry that the very nature of what it means to be us sort of steer us towards that essay you wrote. What it means to be us could begin to become lost, even if that desire is coming from an empathetic place. I worry about the long-term consequences of that fraying, if that makes sense. Yeah. It seems like a a circular phrase. You said, like, it just demands itself. We're Americans because we're Americans. How do you define it? In that essay, I, I offered two... I think three different <laughs> one was the Trump the Trump Americans but three different definitions of what it might mean to be an American what does it really mean to be American I mean how do you do you think it's a defined best by values or an idea or is it just land is it just a, <laughs> a place to place to plant your flag how do you define it great question jay let me read a, a kind of extended passage from your essay to kind of catch the reader up on what we're talking about, because I think it's a great essay. I want to kind of let them in on what we're talking about here. So you have an essay on your website, whatjthinks.com, which I will link in the show notes entitled From Is to Us, in which, like, as we've said, you kind of try and suss out who the us is when we speak of America. And within the context of the essay, you were writing it as the Kurds were being overrun on the Syrian-Turkish border, I think, in 2019. You were trying to suss out what that version of us means when it comes to foreign intervention specifically. And you offered two main definitions. You had that third one, which was kind of an aside, which was the Trumpian one. But you had two main ones, place and idea. I'll read a couple passages and then I'll kind of give you my take. Quote, the place definition. America is a place on earth and we are the people who live in it. We are a collection of about 300 million people populating a landmass that connects two oceans and is bordered on the south mostly by a warm river and in the north by tundra. 
although I would say Canadians would take exception to that phrase. (laughs) The people who live on it are bound together by overlapping histories of ancestors who wished to live in a society committed to a representative republic agreement where we wrestle over which laws we ought to be governed by, but we generally lean towards free choices and against tyrannical systems. If your ancestors fought to get here legally and you were born here, you are one of us. This definition is basically a blood and soil, every man for himself view of us. It's the land and it's the people on it who love it. And with this definition in one's mind, it is quite hard to answer what the Syrian-Turkish border has to do with us with anything substantial. You go on to then say, the idea definition. America is an idea and an experiment about self-governance. The main stage of that experience has been on a landmass in the Western Hemisphere, which we have to protect and take care of or else the global enterprise collapses. It is a universal concept which generally elevates individual freedom above all else and aggressively defends it from the treachery of kings and dictatorships wherever it finds them. We are the vanguards of that experiment. We are simultaneously its subjects and scientists. We are a trusted ally and champion for anyone who believes that this experiment can work, and we are a friend of the underdogs who want to live freely. If that's you, give us a ring and we'll reasonably try to help out. This definition is more of an ephemeral concept which binds us as people who share ideas much more than blood lines or local addresses. By this definition, the situation on the Syrian-Turkish border and the perilous state of the Kurds has a lot to do with, quote, us, end quote. Hmm. Yeah. So before I say my piece, is there any additional context or any commentary you want to add? Because one, that essay was a couple years ago, but I want to give you a fair shake before I give my point of view. Yeah, yeah. And the context of it just briefly was Trump was answering a question about someone was pressing him on like, aren't you going to save the Kurds, dude? Like they're literally being slaughtered and surrounded by everyone right now. And he said, what does that have to do with us? That was the context of not just scoffing at the question, but really trying to answer it because it's a legitimately challenging one by what he means by us. But yeah, go ahead, because I have an anecdote about those definitions as well. But yeah. Okay. So my response is going to take just a hot minute. I was thinking about it last night and I wrote some notes down, but if you'll allow me. So I want to push back on your place definition and point out that you kind of tried to smuggle place into your idea definition in my view. I'm not sure that America exists as an idea outside of its own borders. I used to think this and I one day might think it again, right? Like my mind constantly changes about this stuff all the time. But after the last two decades and specifically all of our foreign wars and other things that have happened, I've kind of come to believe it's kind of a distinctly American programming that we've all undergone. This idea that America is an idea that everyone can inherit and we should either impose or respond to. It's kind of a hubris. And I feel like it's a fairly recent one that only kind of really emerged in the back half of the 20th century after World War II. And obviously, there's some good to that, right? Like, you know, after World War II, it's kind of on America as Europe was repairing itself to kind of be that beacon. And then we had the Cold War, of course. But I can kind of elaborate on this from both a liberal and conservative perspective, both of which I feel are kind of worthwhile in understanding what America, what us is, what I feel is a robust defense of the place definition that from the right allows Americans to feel culturally unique and distinct. And from the left kind of deflates an ego that kind of defines freedom through a very American lens. And you actually touched on this earlier when describing what freedom is in the Nordic countries and how oftentimes actually their definition of freedom is probably closer to the sense of what true freedom actually is. So first, and again, in the spirit of goodwill, these two sentences, quote, if your ancestors fought to get here legally and you were born here, you're one of us. This definition is basically a blood and soil, every man for himself view of us, end quote. So I kind of feel like your first sentence there sort of disproves the thesis of your second. I don't think America can be a land of blood and soil, 
regardless of, you know, what some white supremacists marching with their mom's tiki torches might have to say otherwise, right? I think it's literally impossible for our country to be that because of the fact that we are a nation of immigrants or people who were brought here against their will, but we all come from somewhere else. So the blood and the soil can't be intertwined uh, because yeah, we're all pretty or soil. <laughs> right, right. We're all, we're all pretty new. And Razib Khan, a former guest here, he kind of gets into it a bit in his episode and in, in his excellent essay on the multi-ethnic history of the US, your roots are showing that America was until pretty recently, 1965 specifically, was kind of culturally defined almost exclusively by European immigration, right? Like predominantly Northern European with like a sizable Eastern and Southern European minority population, a foundational Africa descended population, which mostly predates the founding. And a few stragglers who were able to make it (laughs) under technicalities like my Armenian ancestors, shout out. But even then, like who was American and who wasn't was always being contested, right? Like, as you said, often violently with every new ethnic wave, right? Like just sending shockwaves of fear of change and nativist resentment. And then as I've spoken here, and I think I've been talking about this throughout the podcast, because I was thinking about your essay last night from 1920 to 1970, you know, we had those like low levels of immigration and World War II that I think created a fairly cohesive super identity, which of course, like allowed local identities to exist, right? Like the South is different from the North. But if you just look at the media, if you look at things like I Love Lucy, if you look at media from that time, you look at advertisements from that time, like you get a sense of what America was then, right? And this is not washing over any of the multiple problems it had, but there was like an American identity that was formed in that period. And so I think that we're kind of struggling with what it means to be American today, I think in some ways, because it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. It's like, we want to be, and I think this comes from a good place, like we want to be accepting of the immigrants who are arriving now. But I think that also from a liberal point of view, and this is why like, I think the benevolent conservatism can have its place. Like from the liberal point of view, there's this idea that like, well, we don't want to be too, we don't want to really define what Americanism is too much because we don't want to alienate any newcomers. And I get that impulse, right? Like I have friends from all over whose parents are from all over here in LA, but we are all pretty alike. My friend whose parents are from Nigeria, my friend whose parents are from Korea, recently from those countries, like we are all pretty similar. We mm-hmm. speak the same slang. We all read the same history. And that is all like part of that. So I think the recent waves of immigration, which are fairly high in our history, something is changing, obviously, like America is different now than it was in 1970 because of the immigrants that have arrived, but it always has been. Even with all these newcomers, like the change is mostly happening at the margins, I think. I think that we assimilate immigrants pretty well. The changes are like the food we eat, the holidays we acknowledge, right? The music we listen to, that stuff's new. And because American culture is like our number one export, when you're living within your own borders, I think it can feel like you have no culture at all as an American because we're kind of omnipresent. But all you have to do is visit another country. I mean, I'm sure when you visited Ghana for the first time, you felt like very American. And it's not just because of your race, but like you were like, yeah, all my cultural touchstones are different, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a great way to bring sort of the conversation full circle because I was thinking of Ghana and never feeling more American in my life. Because yes, in the way that America, it struck me as so loved and hated simultaneously as to be just it was unavoidably unique and i think it's still loved and hated in that way although i think we're getting a little less controversial because <laughs> we're slipping right from that perch in a lot of a lot of minds around the world but you know what's funny about that essay is i wrote it and you kind of caught me and you're right i wrote <laughs> it actually thinking that the place definition i was trying my best to give the best version of it but I thought it was the wrong one. <laughs> uh, I was literally actually trying to write a kind of like, I want 
you to read this and realize that we shouldn't be choosing it. And I wrote the idea definition as this more, I thought the one that was the one that people were going to choose. And then a buddy of mine read it, who's super liberal, also in California, before I put it out, because I just wanted to see what he thought. And he was totally in the place definition. <laughs> and I was like, oh, sh- oh shit, what happened? And I just put it out being like, that's interesting, I guess. But I actually thought maybe I'm missing something there. And maybe it is because of my foreign travel. Maybe this is a way to like put it together about sensing what it means to be American by really getting out of it and seeing your place in it. I link also in that essay to that video that was going around at the time of Hong Kong, where they were having these anti-China freedom protests and literally waving the American flag and singing the national anthem. And you're like, wait, is that us? Is America there? Is the America the idea of the freedom that they're fighting for in their heads? And we're totally fighting that wrestling match and you said as you pointed to it's an eternal one and i don't know because i thought it was obvious that the liberal answer that was sort of the right one was the idea one and not the place one but maybe i have it wrong and maybe i'm really missing something there and you're right they're not mutually exclusive no i'm putting the idea in the place and i'm putting the place in the idea i'm favoring the place in the idea being like listen we're gonna like obviously take care of problems at home first but hey like if you're out there waving an american flag fighting tyranny we got your back and if we can help out we're gonna try it that was a bit of i thought the promise of what it meant to be an American. And that was the super tribe because it was an idea. Like the question to you is how does someone become an American? And what the place definition is interesting about is this like, if you got here, if you get here, does that mean you're an American? Or can you convert to be an American? Can you gain the values of America? And I'm not sure what what exactly that looks like. If there's a new immigrant who comes over here and is totally engaged in their own cultural practice, that's fine. They're an American. But what if those practices go against some certain taboos of, you know, like if it's a niqab, if you see someone who's just come over from Saudi Arabia and they've immigrated and she's wearing a niqab and it's a forced marriage or something, are you like, are those American values? Or is the American value the fact that, nope, they're Americans because they're here and they get to be Americans and that's it. Even if four generations from now, they're doing the exact same thing. It's all good. They're still Americans. And maybe like, as you were talking about culture and these pockets of culture and like the South and the North is different. That's another place where I have to remind the listener of the rapidly changing ground beneath our feet, aided by technology or maybe because of technology of there used to be these, you said, I love Lucy. Like that was like what everybody watched because there was like five fucking channels on TV. (laughs) And if you were a producer of TV, you needed to appeal to the country or wherever these broadcasts were going out. And people did really bond over those types of things because that was the media they were consuming. With the nichification of media, I have no idea what the most popular show right now is in (laughs) Northern Idaho, but there's great charts where you could actually look at this. I haven't checked them in a while, but it used to be like, what are like the most popular TV shows by region? And it was fascinating to be like, oh, they are living in like a different world than me in Pennsylvania. You know, it would be, it could be like law and order somewhere and it could be some MTV show another way. Like it was crazy. And now that might look like I don't know, every neighborhood is watching something different. And the networks between people who are connected by the media they consume and the slang that they inherit from that media, the inside jokes that they get is not geographical and is like as niche as can be. So I actually don't know what it means to export American culture now. If I was traveling now, which I still do often in other countries, 
I don't know what media I would come across and being like, oh, that's American. Maybe our music, which I don't even listen to, right? <laughs> Katy Perry and like Taylor Swift might be playing on the radio and be like, oh, that's American. Like, I don't listen to that. I have no idea. I can't name <laughs> a song or a lyric of theirs, but does that make me an American just by knowing it? These are all like new questions and new conversations. But then of course, like, what does it mean to be an American? And uh, am I an American? I have no idea. I don't know where we find each other in this conversation, because maybe I've had it wrong all along. Maybe it really is the place definition. But if you go with that place definition, it is hard to answer, what does the Syrian-Kurdish border have to do with us? And maybe it has nothing to do with us. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's like, yeah, we shouldn't have been there. And Trump is is right, clumsy as he is. Like, maybe he was right to be like, oh, yeah, like, that's ridiculous. Let's get out of that. I'm not rooting for that future. Maybe for pragmatic foreign relations reasons of just not wanting China or Russia to fill that void. But there is something lovely about Hong Kong protesters waving the American flag that wants me to answer it with more of a like, oh, they are aspirational Americans. And there is something very American about what they're doing. So I don't know. But yeah, it's interesting that you and and my buddy had sort of the same kind of inkling for the, the one I thought was the wrong choice. At least neither of you are choosing the Trump definition. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have my liberal defensive place, actually. And I don't think it goes counter to what you're saying about Hong Kong, right? And I think that the foreign intervention and the idea of America in terms of how people in Hong Kong were using the American flag as a symbol, I think those are two very different and distinct things. When we talk about exporting American ideas overseas, like I'd rather it be exported in the idea of freedom in a flag waving in a protest versus exported in boots on the ground. But I think that the liberal defensive place would be, and I think it's like a robust defense of our unique, weird Americanness, which is that our definition of freedom in America is rather distinct. Like there is no other country on earth that defines freedom in the way that we do. In many ways, it just simply does not exist outside our borders anywhere. Like our belief in freedom, like how we define freedom is freedom from. Mm -hmm. Whereas most other countries in in your travels, right, they define freedom as freedom too. Like our definitions of freedom are all rooted in our concept of negative freedoms. And it's why our relationship with our own government can be so fraught. The adversarial nature of our relationship with the state is built into our DNA and its founding documents, right? Like the government is framed in the constitution as something that has the power to infringe. And the document is literally written as a restraining order. Like it's like (laughs) the government cannot do these things because left to its own devices, it probably would. It's like an incredibly cynical document that has led to the freedoms that we enjoy, right? But throughout most of Europe and many parts of the world, the government is often seen as the very thing that enables the freedom of its citizens. Freedom from destitution, freedom from poverty, freedom to take time off from maternity and paternity leave freedom to go to college without crushing amounts of student debt, right? Like, that's how it's viewed by most people in the world. And so, like a conservative, like as understood in the American sense, does not exist elsewhere. A conservative in Scandinavia is still arguing from the point of view of a positive rights definition of government. And so, the idea that Americans are everywhere, or that our specific quirky definition of freedom is universal, I would argue that that is kind of an imperialist view. And I'm not arguing against Hong Kong citizens waving the American flag as a symbol of wanting freedom from oppression. Like that is... No, but but you kind of got it right. I mean, that's why they're waving it, right? Because they're arguing their freedom from China, like that kind of system being imposed. Yeah, it's American. Yes. But I would just say that our definition of freedom is uniquely American. And one, I think that's great. Like I think that that if we're talking about like what is American culture, I think that that is intrinsically part of it. 
But I also worry that the idea within your example of the Syrian Turkish border, right? And again, I could change my mind on this in a day if I'm convinced, but it assumes that we naturally have the right to invade and meddle in like a sovereign territory of another nation. Whereas like, we're just so used to it as Americans. Imagine if Chinese tanks rolled through Washington, D.C. on January 7th to return order. Like, <laughs> yeah, that would be insane. We'd be like, this is bonkers, but we do it all the time. Yeah. I mean, we might ask them to do it, but yeah, I mean, foreign, inter- <laughs> foreign intervention might be a, a bit of a red herring for us to open up at this point, but that was good. And like the freedom from, I really like, and I just want to add this wrinkle to it again, because I keep just hammering the same thing about technology. You're right. And this is a big challenge for America is the freedom from, and the way you put it is like a restraining order against the government and particularly is great. And I, th- <laughs> I think where we found ourselves is in a strange situation where the classic obsession of a sort of libertarian freedom from rights-based, it's a freedom from, so you could just sort of be the master of your own domain kind of libertarianism that you're outlining, which is, yes, that's the American experiment, was obsessed rightfully for a long time with the excesses and power corrupts absolutely, so let's not give the government absolute power kind of ethic. And they were coming from kings, and this made total sense. Let's make sure we never have a king again, and nothing, it doesn't naturally evolve out of this bug in our psychology to want power. And it's great. And it worked pretty well for a very long time. I think, and I've made this point before, but if what you say is what we want is a freedom from governmental oppression, that's quite American history. But if it's just oppression generally, we want freedom from oppression. We want freedom from coercion of our illusion of free will. We want freedom to do these things because we're getting the infringements out of the way. Well, increasingly, we're talking about not governments, but technology and corporations and private enterprise changing things rather rapidly and infringing upon those same freedoms in some ways or your freedom of oppression. And suddenly, I think there's an argument (laughs) for a libertarian request to have the government protect you from the private corporations. You could talk about like data trolling of, of social media and stuff like this and suddenly asking governments being like, no, 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 we need you guys now. Like, I know we told you to be really small and ineffective because we were afraid of your kind of totalitarian power. But now look, we need you to step in. We need you to go full Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. And because of what you've said, the sort of like American conservative version of libertarianism, which has been obsessed with small government and that the government can only screw things up is suddenly desperate for a kind of government that can protect them from these private organizations and private corporations that might infringe on on their freedom somehow, or on the more esoteric philosophical things we talked about, about mattering to each other and the isolation and all this kind of stuff. I think it's fascinating and has pointed out like a huge kind of hypocrisy in the sort of American, like, were we always fighting against government or were we fighting against oppression? Because that can shift and that can change. And we desperately might need something like a government to be the very thing that ensures our freedom, not by getting out of the way, but by getting in the way between us and the corporation or breaking it up or whatever it is. And that is something that is also like a strangely uniquely American problem that they aren't yet dealing with in places like Hong Kong, that is still like a government can come and put a gun to your head kind of thing. But those conversations, I think, are a long time coming in America of what does it mean to be American in the sense of, like you said, is it freedom from and is it freedom from tyrannical governments or is it freedom from 
oppression or is it freedom from each other? And that's something really interesting, right? Like the freedom from each other, from bullying each other or killing each other is also like a legitimate conversation to have. With the definition of freedom from a tyrannical government, you might end up with something like a gun problem in America. (laughs) And then you suddenly need, if it's untenable or you decide this is just too untenable and it's not worth the kind of freedoms because I'm afraid of everybody now, then you might need a government to step in and actually protect you from that psychological harm or that harm from other people. So I'm sort of repeating the same point over and over again of like these, maybe the old stories and old conversations we've had about tribalism or about race or now about Americanism and and the libertarianism that comes with it have changed really, really rapidly. And we, we haven't caught up to those conversations. Yeah, I agree. The freedom from massive private businesses and how they have control over the modern public square is a real concern. And it's something so radically new that we're still struggling with how to deal with it. And it's why I think some of it's politically motivated because conservatives are kind of on the blunt end of the stick in terms of feeling like they're being censored by Facebook and Twitter and whatnot, whether or not there's any truth to that. I think sometimes there is, and sometimes it's a little overblown, but you get in these situations where conservatives who are anti-government intervention in private businesses, you know, like Mm -hmm. he should be able to refuse baking a cake for whoever he wants. Right. And then five minutes later, we need to regulate Facebook because they, I'm like, well, you realize that those two things are in direct opposition to each other. And yet we have these situations now where there are reports where it's like all the major tech companies will get together on a phone call and decide in the course of 24 hours to disappear someone from the internet. Right. We could say, well, you know, that, that was a bad guy or like that person deserved it. But we don't talk often enough about how that fact that that happened, that like the CEOs or whoever the representatives were of like Twitter, Facebook, PayPal, all these different platforms, GoDaddy, whatever it is, right? They can all just unilaterally collude and just disappear someone. Like whether or not you agree with the politics of the person who's being disappeared, that is government level power. Because if you're not on the internet anymore, like you really don't have a voice. I mean, like, yeah, you can stand in the quote unquote town square, like your local mall, stand on a soapbox and hand out pamphlets, but you're never going to be able to compete with someone who can send a single tweet. Like a single tweet is going to be able to give you way more reach than being able to say what you want on the corner. Yeah. And so I, I do worry about that. You, you have government level power at the level of private business. I agree. And I desperately, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty avid court watcher and we desperately need Supreme Court rulings on a lot of these things because a lot of them are contradictory at the time. I think the case of was Twitter like legally or did they violate Donald Trump's constitutional right somehow or his First Amendment right, I suppose, when they banned him from Twitter is a fascinating question while he was president. Let's just say that or like before the inauguration, because then he was a private citizen. They could remove him just in those whatever that window was when he was banned. That's a fascinating question. And it seems to be so they already ruled, I don't know if you followed this one earlier, that it was unconstitutional for him to block people on Twitter when he was president. Because the argument says or went that he was using it as an official platform. And so his tweets ought to be considered official communication from the office of the president or from the president. And that means you and I as citizens have a right to read them. And so him blocking someone actually was violating the constitutional right to acquire that information from 
for the citizen. <laughs> that is fascinating, but it sounds like it establishes a kind of official role of Twitter or a usage of Twitter in this official government capacity, which then seems to beg the question of like, well, wait, then can Twitter ban him? And these are all like really fascinating, interesting, as you said, new questions. It does definitely seem like libertarianism and conservatism is at a crossroads where you you have to pick one. Is it that individuals are sort of the ultimate autonomous agent and that's what has the rights and then businesses ought to be treated as individuals or our business is not individuals? Like you said, can a private business do whatever it wants because of libertarianism or... <laughs> Or did I get it wrong? Is it that people ought to be protected with these rights and that no matter who is attacking them, whether it be a business or a government, can't do it? That would be a pretty big shift. And I think, oddly enough, I don't know if this will happen. I don't know where, where you sense this happening. I really think if republicanism can avoid the Trumpism problem and find itself, it is going to just like totally oddly, and this is where we'll flip again, will become the anti corporation, anti-big business party of our country, which sounds totally crazy to you and I as kids who grew up with them as the big business, pro-business party. Right. They will become the party that's anti-business because, and if they do this quickly enough and they become a multi-ethnic class-based party that fights for workers. And I think Jim Jordan has been trying to do this, right? He said, like, we're the party of Budweiser and jeans, not like whatever, whatever they're wearing in Silicon Valley, which might be Budweiser and jeans, ironically, but they're wearing, they're wearing it the real way in Idaho or Iowa or something. I think that that is a legitimately good direction for them to go in and would be good, a good place for the country to respond to and liberals to respond to. And they'll lose it if they don't, because if that back to your definition is really where America can find itself again is a more, and maybe it's me defending the idea thing. It's like the idea is oppression generically, whether it comes from the Chinese government, whether it comes from our own government, whether it comes from corporations, that's the like vision of America that we're going to go with. I think we can find ourselves there and have a conversation with it, but to defend sort of the liberal pushback on it, that argument is much, much weaker than it used to be because what lives underneath that argument is the logic of, I forget who said this first, famous jurist, of your right to swing your fist ends at your neighbor's nose. That, back to my previous point, is your neighbor's nose is much closer than it appeared because of all of the information we have. Driving an SUV right now is punching your neighbor in the nose, even if your neighbor's on the other side of the world, because you're contributing to climate change and you're doing direct harm in this way, because I can draw these lines. And so the argument for finding what oppression and harm really means, if that's the kind of definition of American libertarianism we're going to go with, has shrunk to a large degree because of the liberal recognition of your neighbor's nose is all around you all the time. And there's no way to get off this train. Like you said, everything personal is now political. Everything you do is political. As another example, I was judging for the ethics poll, a really fascinating case. I don't know if he actually did it, but it was a guy who when Trump got elected, was dedicated to not hearing a single piece of news for the four years. I don't know if he managed to do it. He was like a big Cleveland Cavaliers fan and he would watch games like muted just in case the commentators would say anything. Anyway, I was judging students arguing this case and they were like, to a student, every single high school student was making the case that this was an immoral act of his because he had a duty, a moral duty to be informed 
And we, we can set aside how well the media is actually informing us. Bill Maher recently, as, as you pointed out, showed how uninformed a lot of people are from watching it about something like coronavirus. But you have a duty to be informed about the world because what you do with that information is inform your vote, which is political, and inform your, your market choices, right? You could go to the store and boycott certain items or you could buy certain items. So everything you do is participating in the system that affects everyone else. And so this guy was immoral for his action of trying not to learn any information. And that argument, I think, is is makeable now, much more makeable than ever before because of the information we know. But what it misses, a really bad argument, and it's something at full circle, <laughs> way back to the Africa stuff, is what about different kinds of ways of living that are also valid, such as my challenge to that student is like, well, what about the Buddha? He sat under a tree and just meditated for a while and found some kind of truth and knowledge that way. Was that an immoral act because he was failing to be informed about his society? Like his sin of omission during that time of not saving all these lives by going out that he could have, and instead looking inward and finding this inner truth and this inner peace, is that not a valid form of sort of life participation and seeking of a good life. And that I think is something that needs to be contended with as well. But the liberal demand that you cannot be on an island because everything you do is political, including doing nothing <laughs> like this person not watching the news is a bit of a totalitarian philosophy that we also ought to be afraid of. And liberals are going to need to find their handbrake to allow people not to participate in politics by genuinely not participating in politics, we're going to have to find those levers somewhere. And technology might even be the savior there of self-driving cars might solve the SUV problem that I've brought up a few times. You could come up with other imaginative technological solutions that somehow fix the problem that you are actually punching your neighbor in the face. But there you go. Then we're going to be left with the existential problem of are we all just isolated individuals not punching anybody in the face and is that really a life worth <laughs> worth living and worth having because it's a life without risk it's a life without risk of getting hurt or hurting other people and that also can't be a life worth living so i don't know john <laughs> i don't know we're there the two points i would respond to first would be i think that the answer in terms of how to resolve the current fraught relationship with these multinational government level private organizations was the answer lies in civil rights law. Mm. And what I mean by that is I've read some conservative, some like well thought out, well reasoned conservative essays about how America as a truly liberal in the small L sense died in like 1964, 1965 with the passage of the civil rights law. And their argument is that the American experiment before that, and of course, you know, they're kind of yada yadaing over like a lot of a lot of awful stuff. They were like, American experiment was like the absolute sovereign freedom of the individual to do whatever he or she wanted with any aspect of their private life or private business, right? And that the imposition of the government in telling someone, well, no, you have to admit someone into your business. You have to do it. Their argument is, is like, well, there is a fundamental aspect of America's nature that died in the passage of that bill because it introduced government power into a realm of American society that had heretofore never existed, right? I'll concede that. Mm -hmm. The problem with that argument, though, and why I think civil rights law contains the answer to how we solve this problem is if I could wave a wand and rewrite history and there was no 
slavery and Jim Crow and all these other things, right? And we just, I completely rewrote it. And Black Americans came here on their own accord. They immigrated here, right? And then experienced some kind of racism or bigotry that other immigrants experienced, right? And so you have like a small town or a city in which, let's say, 10 or 20%, right, of restaurants or businesses were like, you know what? I don't want to serve any Black people at all, right? But 80% or 90% of businesses said, you know what? I want your business. I'm a greedy capitalist or I'm not racist. Like, I don't care. Like, come on in. If 90% or 80% of businesses were open to Black Americans or whoever was being discriminated against, the Civil Rights Act would have no need to exist. The problem was similar, and this feels like a crude analogy, but I think the underlying tension is the same. The reason that the Civil Rights Act was necessitated and private businesses were, quote unquote, forced to take in anyone who wanted to patronize them was because entire towns of private citizens could collude to make it so if you were a black person, I mean, I'm not telling anyone any stories they don't already know, but to make my point, the Green Book as a book that was sold to black Americans when they needed to go on road trips across the United States, like had to exist because there were entire towns where you could go and like no one would serve you. Now, even if there wasn't a single law in the books, like if every single private business is colluding with one another to be like, all right, guys, we're all in agreement here. We're not going to let in anyone with a certain skin tone into any of our businesses, right? That necessitated the Civil Rights Act. Because if it was only like one dude out of like 10 stores, like one guy was like, you know what? I'm Nah, I'm not going to serve you. You've got nine other stores. And why that's related to today is like, if it's just one social media company, okay, but everyone else is letting you in, fine. But if there's literal phone calls, and this is reported in like legitimate news sources, like the Washington Post and New York Times, where like, they're just unabashedly reporting it. And all the CEOs got together and decided, what are we going to do about this? And they're all agreeing to do it. That in and of itself, emotionally, thematically is connected. Because that is basically the equivalent of an entire town of people getting together and being like, you cannot be here. I would say that the underpinnings of what drove the Civil Rights Act, obviously, this is not a racial issue now with Donald Trump getting banned off Twitter and every other site. Mm -hmm. But the thematic underpinnings are similar in that if an entire town or an entire group of private organizations is getting together to deperson you, that is a much different thing than one guy in a town of 10,000 people deciding he doesn't want to serve you. And so I think that is distinct. And to your other point about the students judging the guy because he didn't want to watch Donald Trump for four years and that he had a duty to be informed, like that line of thinking damns everyone yes. because that's a train that has unlimited cars. You never stop because you could say to those students, and maybe you did, okay, well, why aren't you volunteering all of your free time to homeless shelters? Why aren't you spending every waking hour of your life? I mean, it's like in the Bible, if you don't abandon your earthly life and spend your life dedicated to Jesus, you are in some way failing. Like that was like, kind of like a leave all your possessions behind and follow me. Everyone is damned in that scenario because none of us would be doing enough. The fact that I'm talking to you on a podcast rather than I'm at a soup kitchen Mm -hmm. would damn me under that scenario. So I think that that's really an untenable solution. Yeah, there's a great essay by Susan Wolf, who was actually my very, very first guest on Dilemma. She's just an amazing moral philosopher who wrote this essay in 1982. This is the episode about the Louvre? Yeah, the very first one. Yeah, so yeah, you heard it. It's, it was a great one. It was, it was a fun intro. But she wrote this essay called Moral Saints that we go through a little bit in that conversation, which I think I got kind of right. But it's a great essay. It holds up to time. It was, born, it was 1982, the year I was born, so it's like grew up with me. But is a reminder that as someone who did what you just said, like someone who was literally every waking moment is going out and like applying their moral philosophy 
and trying to do their best with all they can all the time is a great person. This is not to denigrate that person, but we need and want other kinds of people in the world. Like someone who spends their time getting really, really good at basketball is using that time. As you said, there's sort of like a zero sum game of our time on earth is not using that time to like go save orphans somewhere. It's a kind of person that we want in our society, that we want to be friends with, that we want around, that we need each other back to this point in this way. We need some moral saints. We need some good basketball players. We need great jazz musicians. We want a society that's diverse in its goals and efforts, which is not an argument about like everyone should try to do really good. But it's a reminder that moral saints is not some North Star that everybody should be aiming for. And we don't want that kind of society. So we have to factor that in back on ourselves to that point. And, you know, high schoolers, I think, are trying to be moral saints a lot of times. So it was, <laughs> it was great to remind them also that, hey, like being a painter is awesome too. And we want that because I want to see your painting. So like spend time working on it. It makes my life better. It makes life worth living. It makes life worth living and more diverse. To your point about diversity, like diverse efforts and ways of being and things to focus on has been has been denigrated in our society as well it seems like the only good people are the people you only get called a good person if you're always doing this kind of effort you might even get called a bad person if you're like oh i don't care about politics and it's like <laughs> oh you just murdered someone somewhere by not you have caring to do the work jay yeah do you, the work <laughs> you have to it, i mean it's it's sort of the not to like pull in candy but the problem with the anti-racism thing is it doesn't let anybody off the train it doesn't let anybody say like you know I'm actually just not that political i'm going to work on my painting and it's being like well if you're not actively doing this thing right now you're wasting your life and you're actually imprisoning people by not doing this thing yeah and it, it's a untenable position for society it's not a society that anybody really wants to live in or, or be in but the questions you raise about sort of what social media companies which is really good interesting legal case like i said we need to legally figure all of this stuff out and they're fascinating and as much as i disagree with a lot of the court appointees i actually think the, the bench is it's not bad <laughs> for what it'll do. I mean, it's going to do a lot of things that I don't disagree with, with religious freedom, I'm sure. But we should not be packing the court. Democrats, this would be like the worst possible thing that they can do right now. But they should be fascinating to watch these kinds of things. And there's infrastructure for what you said that's out there about sort of, is it available? I mean, this was even an argument in the famous Masterpiece Cake Shop case of the, the gay wedding cake in Colorado, if there was other bakeries available and this kind of thing. And so we have sort of the philosophical legal knowledge to apply to the new world and the virtual world that we're in. So I'm not terribly worried that we won't find our footing there. But it's all just, it's all new, a new context for old philosophical problems. And the problem of should, you know, a business be treated as an individual or should individuals be treated as individual like you said it sounds like when we went more towards the former meaning that no the business shouldn't be treated as an individual like an individual can do what they want cannot like black people <laughs> like we don't it's not like a nice character but it's not an illegal character but a business not allowing black people in there that was a bridge too far being like wait a minute what do we do with that one should a business be treated as an individual yes or no and if the answer is no then we do like we have to answer that question and it immediately invents and demands a kind of governmental intervention that is okay we need to be able to talk about that kind of thing and liberals hate it when it's made in that argument of like 
a government steps in in a certain way they don't like, and now conservatives are hating it when it's a government stepping in a way they don't like. It's really just the outcomes <laughs> in the end of what what we like or don't like. But this has always been a philosophical problem, I think, of what it means to be be an American. Are businesses individuals or are they special individuals? I don't know, but we've avoided that problem, I think maybe is my point. We've avoided that problem for a long time in American history because they could only get so powerful businesses. Like right. they could only get so much. And then you're you're right, they could collude in a way to like an entire town won't let black people into their shops. And then you have a problem. But individually, they could only get so powerful. That landscape is really, really changing rapidly where they can get yeah. incredibly incredibly powerful like railroad barons yeah. yeah i mean you know you're like this is the only way you can get across the united states really quickly and you can't ride on my rails yeah. it's like well you can't do that you know like your private business right of course which you constructed i mean obviously with a lot of very cheap irish and chinese labor but yes it is your private business but now that you are the only or one of two or three or four railroad tracks that can take me from new york to california yeah, you kind of have an obligation now to let people use your train. Yeah. It becomes a situation where if you are the only game in town or one of a handful of games <laughs> in town, yeah, sorry, it kind of is on you now. You have an obligation. If there were a thousand railroads leading from California to New York, the railroad barons would have never been addressed by the government. Yeah. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Yeah. And, and you know, what's funny and also to tie this together is that railroad ties, Jay, railroad ties. Yeah. yeah. No, it's very good. Yes. <laughs> touch the third rail now. No, the, just trying to keep you on track. Oh God. Keep going. <laughs> I think we're, we're near the caboose of this episode. <laughs> One of the, when we talk about sort of exporting American culture and what defines us and like how these things come, we have to also acknowledge the role of private corporations is like integral to that. Like what could be more American than Coca-Cola? <laughs> and so when Coca-Cola steps into this game that you're talking about now and like denigrates Georgia for their law, and it's like, wait, what the fuck? Coca-Cola makes sugary drinks. Like, why do they have anything to say about this? And why does anybody care? But maybe we're making the argument of like, well, actually, of course, like Coca-Cola is about as American as you could you talk about traveling in Africa and seeing Coke products. You're like, oh, it's home. <laughs> you're like, this is home. And it weirdly has was at least like apolitical. Republicans and Democrats all drink Coca-Cola, I'm sure. Or used to. <laughs> I don't know if those boycotts actually hold up. So when they get involved personally and say, like, we don't like this law, in some ways it makes total sense, but it also points to, and Republicans might even be right about this, of being like, wait, Major League Baseball and Coca-Cola have something to say about this? This is quite dangerous. Like, where is that going to, going to lead that's anywhere good? If the version yeah. of America takes a firm stance on the question of businesses can do what they want or individuals can do what they want. Because you could say like, wait, Coke's a private company. They can do whatever they want. But if we're sort of making this kind of backdoor argument that, wait, Coke kind of belongs to all of us and in a weird way, we all have a stake in that because it represents America. It's like reached that level of importance. Yes. Well, then maybe they shouldn't, right? Because it's almost yeah. like the phone company. I mean, that's a weird argument, but if you followed it, it's, it makes some sense. Like, I don't care what some mom and pop says about like the Georgia thing, but I know Coca-Cola <laughs> and I know Major League Baseball. And so that's the fight. But I also, I have to call out, you know, I call it libertarians a lot. I have to call out sort of the libertarians for totally abandoning this conversation. <laughs> and I'm going to pat myself on the back. I've been like, begging them to address this for a long time of like, wait a minute, 
Are you fighting the governments or are you fighting oppression? Is the business your friend or is it your enemy? Are you going to make a deontological case here? Like, what does your libertarianism really mean to you? And for a long time, I was getting a pretty direct, it's the governments. I'm afraid of the governments because the government, they own the guns and they have the power to like build a jail and put me in jail. So it's governments that I worry about. And I think suddenly, not to pat myself on the back now, but I'm like, I told (laughs) you idiots, like I told you, you would need the government in order to step in between this problem. And now, I don't know, are we going to be having the same conversation about Amazon? three years from now, a private corporation, can they do what they want? Do they have a monopoly over blenders and who gets them? Imagine if Amazon wouldn't ship to certain zip codes, depending on how they voted. Yeah, right. And then it's like, do we need the government? I mean, I'm not saying it'll happen, but I mean, that's not that far of an extension. You know, it's like in declaring solidarity with et cetera, et cetera, we have decided that from now on, we will no longer ship packages to these states until blah, 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 blah. I mean, like, is it that much of a stretch in light of Coca-Cola, in light of MLB? Like, You could literally get to a situation where the major, you could say the only online store that you can basically purchase anything from. Yes, you could cobble it together from a couple other sites. You're talking about the main site could tomorrow, and maybe it's legal. I don't know. They could apply federal government style pressure onto states by saying, unless you repeal this law, unless you do X, Y, Z, we will not ship any packages to anyone within your state until you do so. I mean, maybe that's illegal. I don't know. But, but would a libertarian argue like they're a private corporation they <laughs> right. what they want? Or would they argue you're violating my right to order a blender cheaply because you're too big or, or the competition doesn't hold up to it or just that's un-American? And Amazon is about as American as you could get also now. It's like bigger than Coca-Cola. I got to give you a five-minute warning though, by the way. We've, we've gone up for quite some time and I need to eat lunch here. So These are great. <laughs> it all works out. There were sitcoms in the early to mid 90s where there was just like a recurring guest. Maybe you'll be like towards the end of the opening credits where it's like Ann J. Shapiro and you'll just be like, I hope so. In the window waving, hey, it's another episode with that guy. I basically just get free therapy from you. (laughs) And this is great. So every time I need it, I'll just ping you. No, I mean, I I really, really appreciate the runway to like work some of these things out, honestly. Like I said, it's maybe it felt like that. It's like a brainstorm of like, let's try to describe the problem and. I don't know if there's any marching orders to solve it, but yeah, I really appreciate it. No, of course. Yeah. And it's just, it's refreshing to be able to talk about this stuff at length. Mm -hmm. And I think also that's probably why Clubhouse is catching on in the way that it is, because I think that people are desperate for the ability to talk about important issues in ways that allow them, as you said, runway to figure stuff out. As amazing as Twitter is, it is not runway. It is a (laughs) four foot diving board. Like you have no, you have, you have no room to achieve liftoff. Yeah. So yeah, no, I really appreciated this. Yeah. I know we left a lot of stuff on the table there, like COVID and everything else, but for next time. You can't get it from tables. You don't have to, anyway. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. You cannot get it from contact, but (laughs) I would be remiss if I didn't, per tradition, ask you the question, which I know you know is coming now, that I ask every guest, even second timers like yourself. Yeah. I'm going to say the question for the benefit of anyone who's listening to this for the first time. I love it. I want to hear it again too. Yeah. Jay, as individuals, we're limited in our time in our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned and caring person, you know, like the ones your high school students were modeling, can't be thinking of every person, every group of people all the time. It's just impossible. So, is there someone or a group of people in your life or in the world at large that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to? 
I was just in Mexico for a while. You know this. I was in Mexico City. Maybe it's why I sound still a little zenned out. I'm still like in like, I got a distance from America. So the absurdities of it are helpful to see from slightly afar. I was in Mexico City, sort of just living and working and getting away from the end of winter. And I want to give the reminders of our place in the world. We've talked a lot about sort of America as a place in the world and my experiences traveling and foreign relations and all this stuff. There are a lot of people in this world who are not nearly as lucky as we are. I literally, when I landed in the airport, still on the plane, fired up my phone in North Carolina and made an appointment for my vaccine and got it two days after I was home. My first shot, I'm halfway vaccinated now. And in Mexico, just over our border in Mexico City, where I was, which is beautiful, by the way, if you've never been, they're talking, they have no idea. And also the information is pretty crummy there. There's waiters literally wearing goggles and face masks and spraying you with like holy water when you went go to a place. And some of this I'm sure is sort of a social signaling and but some of it is also misinformation. And who knows what that place is gonna look like. But speaking about privilege, and we you know, we've talked about tribalism within America a lot and our racial conversations and problems and histories and all that kind of stuff. We're doing okay as a country. And regardless of our problems or if we're declining or not, which I think we probably are, but it's easy to forget how there are massive groups of people. My friends in Uganda, I could be pointing to here, but I'm just waving a wand right now at all of the people in countries that are not nearly at the pace or scale of economic and infrastructural development as America is in technological development and communication, where they have no idea when they're going to get out of this thing. And they're really genuinely struggling. And that's it. I think that was really well said, Jay. You've seen this stuff up close and personal, not just in the documentaries that you've made, but in the friends and maybe family that you've made as you've been abroad. I think that that offers a deep kind of perspective that I think a lot of Americans are missing, especially now. I read about the same news and about how some of these countries are not going to be getting vaccines until 2022. They have no idea. It could be much longer than that too. I mean, they have no idea. No idea. And they're genuinely hurting and struggling. Their economies are hurt. I mean, the tourism part of it is also hurting. Mexico has remained open famously and getting some of it. But some of those places I go to talk about sort of like unjust riches and stuff like this, like a lot of those countries in Africa that are struggling to form these super tribes and national identities, which then would fuel a kind of collective economy where libertarianism could kind of work because you would trust the competition and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These like nascent capitalist systems really depend on some influx of tourism, which is not happening. And it dries up entire sectors of economies there. And people are, yeah, just really, really hurting. And we forget as Americans how privileged we all are. So it's not just a white privilege problem. We could all be implicated in the American privilege problem and sort of check our own privilege and then do something about it. In the same way that you and I are are not in denial of white privilege, but we think the answer lies in trying to bring everybody to that place of a kind of privilege somehow and we're trying to brainstorm on it we can apply that all ourselves as americans like even the poorest americans are in a better situation than many many people that i've come across in my travels in africa in nepal all over the place check our privilege and then do something about it to get it out to just do our part for the world if we can, for ourselves and for the world if we can. Yeah. Get out of our own heads a little bit. Americans are a little self-important. So it's good to remind ourselves how the world can get itself into trouble just fine without us. But to make one last sort of callback, there's power to the place of America as an idea 
in people's heads around the world. And I've seen it firsthand. Again, loved and hated like nowhere else. But if we slip and if we lose that, just in the idea in place in people's heads, it's a beacon in that sort of Ronald Reagan sense of an idea of a beacon on the hill that the world will miss <laughs> when it goes away. And so it's, it isn't it's for the more self, like let's figure ourselves out. That also does good for the world because we need this experiment to work or else the Gettysburg Address was a foreboding uh, prediction of failure that this can't work. But we're the experimenters and the scientists itself. Let's try to make the experiment work somehow. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, I mean, and that's the kind of benevolent foreign intervention I could 100% get behind. And perhaps next time we talk, we could talk about ways in which America can counter the Belt and Road initiatives that mm, China is enacting across Africa. Yes. I would much rather it be American financial intervention than Chinese in that regard. Yeah. But in order to let you go and in order to feed myself, <laughs> we'll wrap it up for now. But Jay, thank you for just talking out your thoughts, which I always find so incredibly interesting. And thank you for the great conversation and for coming on. And I look forward to the next one. Yeah, man, I do as well. So again, just thank you so much for anybody who gets through these long conversations with me. I really appreciate every single ear who might find something, even if you disagree with me vehemently, you know where to find me and make a good argument because I love that and I love finding where I'm wrong. And if I made an argument that you or any any listener sort of like thinks that I could do better with, I'd love to hear that as well. Because I, as you heard, I like to try to make these arguments that I might not even necessarily believe in or think are good ideas. So thanks so much, man. I, like, you know, I love this show. And so I'm grateful that you have me on. Well, you're very welcome. Thanks again for listening to the New Liberals podcast. Tune in next week for a conversation with the host of the Embrace the Void and Philosophers in Space podcasts, Aaron Rabinowitz. Until then, may we be liberal with our goodwill, liberal in our capacity for friendly disagreement, and liberal in our willingness to change our minds when we feel justly convinced. Listener.